so we were going through a redesign of our break of the, one of the break rooms and they didn't swap out any product. They just took all the soft drinks and they put them on lower shelves in the refrigerator and they frosted the glass, but not the entire glass. It was frosted from like the bottom up. And so then at the top were more, um, you know, coconut waters and things of that nature. So something that had a little bit of flavor, maybe a little sweetness, but would be rated better than having uh, right. soda. And then they started putting out water into um, containers, you know, again, infused with something. And we saw uh, a 31% decrease in soft drink consumption once we made that change on a weekly basis uh, without taking anything away from anybody. So just, you know, making it more presentable, making it more accessible and giving people an opportunity to just see the difference. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is the Director of Global Wellness for LinkedIn, Michael Susie. Michael started his journey through the health and wellness disciplines as a member of the Lebanon Valley College football and track teams. Then, as a collegiate football coach, which coincided with various sales and marketing roles at companies that range from large corporations to internet startups over a 15-year span. He joined LinkedIn in 2011 to start the company's wellness program, and since then has scaled the program to serve the company's 14,000 employees through the six tenants of wellness. Michael is also a Czech Institute trained professional, completing Czech exercise coach and Czech holistic lifestyle coach level one. Well, Michael, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Czech. It's exciting to have you on the show. I was alerted to you and what you're up to with LinkedIn by Gavin Jennings, our CEO. And uh, I was always, I'm always interested in Czech professionals that have made it into the corporate environment because I really feel that uh, that's a great place for mass education. Absolutely. And uh, people there generally have enough inspiration and direction and goals and dreams in their life to be inspired to apply these things. So I'm excited to talk to you today. So welcome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Paul. It's a, it's a real pleasure to speak with you. Um, you have had personally a great impact on me, both my personal life and my professional life. So the opportunity to chat with you on your podcast is uh, an absolute privilege. Well, so thank you. I got some background information yeah. on you from Penny and looked in and saw that you were the director of the LinkedIn Health and Wellness Program. But I found it interesting that your academic education was in arts and history. Yes. And I'm wondering if you could share some of your developmental history so we can get a sense of who you are, your values, and what inspires you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, uh, it's been quite a journey. I never imagined I would end up uh, in the position that I am in. And, you know, I think to really get the full picture and what my thought process and how I developed over time, I kind of, for me, it all begins when I was in high school uh, and I was an athlete. I played, you know, the traditional American sports of football, basketball, and baseball. Uh, football was my love uh, and I wanted to play it in college and I wanted to play it well beyond college. Uh, I wasn't good enough to play beyond college, but uh, it was a major driver in where I decided I wanted to go to school. And so, you know, a little bit regrettably, I didn't really value the academic side of things. School came relatively easy for me. 
but uh, I didn't really put the value into where I would get my education from. So for me, it was all about where can I go play football? And uh, I ended up going to the first college I went to, which is called Lycoming College in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And mm-hmm. it's a division three football program. And I went there because I wanted to play right away. I didn't want to walk on at a bigger school and have to sit around. Uh, and I was an accounting major in my first three years of college, two and a half years. And I chose that because I was good at numbers. I figured I'd get a job, you know, and I speak now reflecting back, having the context of a lot of things I've learned um, over time. But I didn't really have a solid purpose at that point in time, aside from, you know, um, playing football and seeing what, what was I good at. And beyond that, I really didn't give much thought. So I was an accounting major. And one summer I had an internship and I absolutely hated it. I hated being in an office. Um, I felt like I was just missing so much. Uh, at the same time, I also happened to be transferring schools. Uh, I wasn't happy with the playing time that I had at the first college I went to. So when I transferred, I also saw it as an opportunity to change a lot of different things. So I was going to go somewhere that I felt new in this case that I was going to go play. I didn't want to be in an office setting. Um, and I wanted to be around football. I knew I was good enough to play the next level. So the obvious thing to me what to do was to coach. But coaching at that time, I also thought about I should get a teaching degree because that's the most natural way that you become a football coach is you're a, a high school teacher. And I went that path. And I remember actually speaking to a teacher of mine from high school who said to me, you should get, I should get a math or a science degree because male math and science teachers are highly valued. Social studies and PE teachers, male teachers are a dime a dozen. So I was like, that sounds like great, solid advice. So I was a math major for one day, literally one day. I sat in that classroom and I was like, this is, I didn't come here to do this. Um, and I literally, I changed and I chose a history major. And that's ultimately what I ended up uh, graduating with. Fortunately, math, I was going to say math is, uh, it takes a certain kind of mind, doesn't it? Whew. You know, I had calculus in high school, so I thought I was good at it. In a hundred level course, I was like, this is high school, what I remember doing, but this is hundred level. And this is already really challenging for me. And uh, it did, definitely took it to a level that I wasn't willing to commit the time and the effort to. My priorities admittedly were a bit askewed uh, back then in my younger days. Um, yeah, I, so, I had to. I was just going to say I had to go to math school in the army for two months to uh, pass my examinations to enter electronic school, and I'll tell you that was two months of constant brain racking. And by the end of the day, I felt like some elephant had sat on my head. <laughs> it's challenging, um, especially if you don't have a passion for it when you have to do it. Um, I didn't end up end up teaching though. I ended up getting a coaching job at the college I ended up graduating from, Lebanon Valley College in Anvil, Pennsylvania. And I saw it as a blessing. I was like, I get to just be around football all the time. And then rather quickly, within about a year and a half to two years of my first coaching job, this is back in 1996, um, I kind of got the full gamut of what it's like to be a college football coach. So I've been fired. I've moved different states to find a new job at another college. Uh, you move another college because someone else left a position and one opened up and you're moving to another state and uh, you make no money. Um, not until you know, everyone sees like the, the big time colleges, people walk on the sidelines there making millions of dollars a year. But uh, that's even more rare that I think than actually being uh, an actual football player at that, at that level. Yes. Um, 
So I tried that. I didn't like it. And I was at a crucible moment in my life where all my hopes and dreams were like crashing around me. And I didn't know who I was or what I wanted to do. So I, I quit coaching. Um, and I moved back home thinking I would just fall back on my history degree and become a teacher. And I really was not happy with that. Uh, it didn't take me long to realize that I needed to do a change. And I literally one night in the middle of the night, packed up my stuff and moved to New York City. I was living in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where uh, at my parents' house where I grew up. And I moved to New York where my sister lived, and I was like, I'm just going to start all over. And that was a really challenging time because, I, again, I, my identity was inextricably tied to being a football player. And when that was gone, I mean, I really had no idea who I was or what I wanted to do or what anything was really all about. I literally remember being out for a run in Brooklyn one day and I just stopped. I was like, there's no game on Saturday. So why, who cares about any of this? And uh, I had some initial jobs in New York where I was a bouncer at a nightclub for a little bit through a friend that had a promotion company. Um, I worked at a comedy club in a similar capacity, but ultimately I got you know a real job, a nine to five at an outdoor advertising agency, but I needed extra money. So I got a job as a personal trainer in the evenings at the New York sports club on the Upper West Side. And that kind of really opened my eyes up to what wellness, I didn't call it wellness back then, but just not working with athletes, but working with, you know, average people with a little bit more ubiquitous types of goals really opened my eyes to how we as trainers uh, and coaches need to move beyond helping people be bigger, faster, stronger, but actually help with the entirety of their, of their being. So um, that kind of got me on the path of both business and, and uh, training, you know, wellness, helping people with performance. And actually, I'll pause right there because I feel like I have a lot more of that story to tell. But I feel like I've also been speaking for uh, way too long. No, no, go for it. You know, it's it's uh, fun because we're we're getting to go on the hero's journey with you. Everything you're describing is very classic of the departure in the hero's journey, and yeah. you know, going into the underworld and meeting all the challenges and yeah. And there you know, were, you know, it's funny you say underworld. You know, I. When I kind of gave up you know, that night job, nightclub job that I had for a while, you know, I was in you know, a nightclub Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights working from like 11 p.m. until 3 a.m. And, you know, it was New York City and, and it's just you're a young kid and you get caught up in a bunch of different things. And it was really challenging, but it was eye opening for me to realize where that value of taking care of my body came from, because I didn't for a time and not a really long time, but long enough to feel the effects and just not feel good um, and have a, something to compare that to. Have a, having a relative that I used to feel good and suddenly I wasn't feeling good. And I looked at what I was doing or wasn't doing anymore and realized I really needed to, to make a change. And that opportunity I had to work at the New York Sports Club as a trainer opened my eyes to all these different aspects of our human performance beyond, again, just running faster or jumping higher. Um, but it also was a really grueling job and doesn't pay very well. And ultimately I didn't see myself in that long term. I really just saw it as something to help fill a void, give me a little extra money till I got a little bit more established in my career. So I was working as a sales assistant at an outdoor advertising agency. Uh, I had a couple of different jobs within that organization. And then eventually I answered an ad in the New York times for a sales rep for um, an internet company. That was pretty much the description of it. And the interview was down in the World Trade Center. This was like 1998-ish, 1998, 99. So I ended up getting this job. I was a third person at this company. 
It was called Career Engine. And we were in the verticals of building job boards. This was before Monster and Hot Shops had like really blown up that market, um, running Super Bowl ads and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we had these IPO dreams. You know, we were working in the World Trade Center. We were young. We were going to work our tail off and get, you know, super, super rich. Uh, that didn't really go that way. Um, learned a lot. Uh, stopped training at New York Sports Club because I didn't need to in, from an income perspective. Um, but I started to realize also how much I missed that interaction I had with people, just the office setting. I was a little bit back into that mindset I had when I was at an accounting major, feeling like I'm in this office, but it was a little bit different because I had a little bit more money now. I was living in New York. Um, and ultimately, you know, the World Trade Center happened. Uh, we were okay. Um, I actually didn't even leave Brooklyn that morning. Uh, I went to vote, as a matter of fact. And Good thing. Uh, yeah. And, um, so I, I was spared from having to go in there. All of our people were fine in that regard. But, you know, the company started to, to go downhill after that. And I ended up having to get another job. So I took a job as a sales rep for Airborne Express. And I don't know if everyone remembers Airborne Express, but it was a former, you know, FedEx, UPS, and Airborne did ground delivery in the U.S. Yes, yeah, quite a while ago. Quite a while ago. And this, this is actually something that I also look back on my, on my life where I have these opportunities of great fortune that I don't necessarily foresee, but something happens and it pays this value later. So with my job with Airborne, I had a company car. And so, which was a rarity to have in New York. You don't really need one if you're living in the city. And then DHL purchased Airborne. And suddenly Airborne doesn't do uh, company cars, they do car allowances. And so us in the cities were like, well, we don't have any other cars. So they gave us an opportunity to purchase uh, the car that we had. So I bought this 2004 Camry for like $7,000. It had 40,000 miles on it. And uh, there I was a car owner. Seems rather inconsequential until I'm in that job for a few more months and it was brutal. Uh, learning about logistics is fascinating. Having to go out and hit sales numbers and territories and it was just not for me. The gentleman that started the previous company, Career Engine, started a new company, but it was in New Jersey. And he called me up and he was like, I'd love for you to join our organization, but I know you don't have a car and you have no way to get out here. And I was like, dude, I got a car like two weeks ago. <laughs> uh, I'm like, I'm in because I can't stand this. What's happening right here? So I ended up quitting and I moved back in. I went to this new job. Um, it was called CUNet. We did online lead generation for colleges and universities. Uh, most back then it was like the for-profits university of Phoenix and schools of that nature. Now even traditional schools have a lot of online opportunities, but our job was to go out and help these schools generate leads to turn them into enrollments at their, at their universities. Uh, I didn't really care for that, but it was going to pay me very well. And it was better than doing the other things I liked. It was a startup environment. So it was really fun to help build this company. Um, but I became a little, um, disillusioned with some things. Um, take a sabbatical. If you, I mean, it wasn't an official sabbatical, but I spent about nine months as a personal trainer at an Equinox uh, in Scarsdale, New York. And I really, this is when I started, get, I went and got my exercise coach certification at that time. Oh, right on. I'd already had the uh, NASM, but I went and got the exercise coach. I got a CSCS from NSCA. I got the metabolic typing um, certification. And I really felt like I was going to build this life as a trainer. And it was great. I really enjoyed it when I had things to study because the middle of the days were free. But eventually I kind of got tired of that and just saw the grind of trying to make a living in that regard. And uh, I ultimately went back and rejoined CUNet, uh, 
uh, after about like nine months, uh, a little less than a year in that position as a trainer at Equinox. And then as good fortune would have it, the company got purchased. And then with that purchase, I got a se- I was let go, but I got a severance package. And for the first time in my life, I didn't have to chase a paycheck. And so I said to myself, I was like, self, what is it that you want to do? And I actually rented a house down in Cape May, New Jersey for about four or five weeks. And I spent every day not waking up to an alarm clock, spending time at the water, really having nothing to do but thinking about what it is that I want to put together. I also think it's really important to say that I was in a relationship previous to that where my girlfriend, I think she went all the way up to an HLC three. So I was oh, right on. I was getting all this all this vision boarding. I mean, all these different things that she would go out to the Czech Institute and come back and share with me that I was beginning to apply in my and suddenly I had an opportunity. I mean, she taught me so much in that regard and really enabled me to be in that position, um, despite the fact that our relationship didn't work out. And I through all that different aspect of vision boarding and doing that work and working towards purpose and, and you know dealing with issues from the past, things that are holding me back, getting really clear on what it is that I want to do, I ultimately came up with this idea of a company that I called Suzy Fit and SuzyFit.com. And it was after having exercise coach certification and the online assessments, I was like, you know, through my sales and marketing background and my training background and access to these great online assessments. I could be someone's trainer or coach and be anywhere in the world. I didn't have to be geographically tied to a particular area. Because I always tell people, hairstylists, doctors, and trainers are in the same boat, which is once you set up a, a business somewhere, it's really hard to even move across town, let alone move across the country or across the world. Um, and so I didn't want to have that geographical limitation. So I created Suzy Fit in the hopes of being able to be anywhere in the world and I could train and coach um, people wherever they may be through online assessments, you know, both the exercise, uh, what comes from um, exercise coach certification, as well as the metabolic typing, and then using video to be able to see people move. So you don't, everybody thinks they know how to squat. Yeah. And then you watch them squat and you're like, no, I need to help you out with that. Yeah. So I was doing Suzy Fit and I was living off my severance package money. And then it was, now we're up to like 2010. I had a friend who was an elite, is an elite runner, and he started a running company out here in uh, Silicon Valley. And one of his clients was a project manager at LinkedIn. LinkedIn was about 800 people at this time. He, on these long runs they were doing, would tell my friend how they're starting a well, they want to start a wellness program at LinkedIn, but they want to go a non-traditional route than finding these large companies that can come in and like instill a, a program that's very templated and kind of corporate they want to build it themselves and really have it with the LinkedIn culture and all of that. So my friend thought of me. He reached out to me and said, what do you think about us actually going and combining forces and bidding on this contract? So we did that. Um, we came out, we combined, he had a little technology company, and we bid to have the LinkedIn, um, start the LinkedIn wellness program. And our my business plan from Suzy Fit was the wellness program that I pushed forward and said, this is how I train and work with people one-on-one, we would use these same principles, which are what we now call the six tenets, which you know I learned from you through all the different uh, trainings that I've had. Um, and we will have programs that touch on all of these. And so those six are you know, thoughts, breathing, hydration, nutrition, movement, and rest. Nothing new to any checky. And we won the contract. Excellent.
Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the show today. I'd really love to take a minute to talk to you about Mike Salemi's amazing new program called Mastering the Kettlebell. This program is designed for everyone from the layperson, the weekend warrior athlete, to the serious athlete, to the rehabilitation professional. Mike and I spent two and a half years working together, during which time I helped him rehabilitate two pretty serious injuries, a thoracic outlet syndrome and a compartment syndrome. In that time, Mike learned a hell of a lot about himself, a lot about four-doctor management. And while he was doing that, he was also being trained as a Czech professional, where he learned a significant amount, as many of you know, about assessments and all things that I teach through the Institute. Mike's got several Russian Masters titles, and he's won a world championship, so he's clearly established himself as a world-class athlete and an expert in the kettlebell field. Mike's program contains all the wisdom that I share in the Czech Institute teachings, as well as a lot of wisdom from other masters he's studied with from around the world. Today we have an aging population, and sadly, many people suffer from osteoporosis. And one of the neat things about Mike's kettlebell program is there's lots of exercises for the long bones that aid in calcium uptake making your long bones durable. So I know that that's an important component because many of you who potentially want to take Mastering the Kettlebell would want to be able to use this information for a wide variety of people, not just athletes. And this program is absolutely excellent. As I said for everybody, I've looked through it. I know Mike personally. He's one of the most disciplined students and athletes I've ever worked with in my entire career. Some of the unique features that Mike offers in Mastering the Kettlebell is that he offers a pre-checklist that shows you optimal setup and execution for each exercise. He also provides step-by-step progressions for each exercise. With his training program, you can gain a lot of enhanced motor skills, strength, power, or endurance right at home while using as little as one kettlebell. In fact, Mike teaches the entire program with one kettlebell. The program is great for anyone wanting to approach conditioning in a way that is highly portable and efficient. When I go on vacation, for example, I take a couple of kettlebells and a couple of club bells, put them in our car or the motorhome, and uh, I get myself (laughs) even better shape sometimes when I'm on the road than I do at home. And uh, that's largely because I get to drill some of these key movements right in. And uh, it's also really fun, and I love it because you can just do it anywhere. Rain or shine, you don't need a gym, just parking lot or piece of dirt or grass, and you're off to the races. The program's comprehensive enough for exercise and rehabilitation professionals, but it's presented with such clarity that even a beginner that wants to master the kettlebell can follow and benefit immediately. One of the things that Mike offers that I truly love is his support system. He has three levels of support. He has a Facebook community uh, that supports you for getting questions, answers, and sharing ideas with other kettlebell enthusiasts, and Mike has many that follow him. He has an email support uh, option so that you can ask him questions directly, and you can book private mentoring time with Mike in person or at a distance using Facebook or Skype. Mastering the Kettlebell is the safest, most effective kettlebell training program in the world. You can do it in the comfort of your own home. You can even take your phone or tablet into the gym and follow along with Mike and learn through practical training. 
I can give you my word. This is the best kettlebell training in the pro uh, program in the world. It's a blessing that you can do it from the comfort of your own home or your own gym. So don't get older. Get stronger with Master the Kettlebell. Yeah, it was, it was a turning point in my life. You know, I was living in central Pennsylvania. It was a very humbling time because when I was in New York and I was living off the severance money, my lease came up and it was at a point where I was like, if I stay here in New York, this money's not going to go as far. Um, if it's my rent, if I can reduce those expenditures, you know, I can make this go a little bit, give myself a little bit more leeway to ramp this company up. So I put my tail between my legs and moved back to my parents' house. I mean, I was 36 years old, 37 years old, which is not, it was tough to do, but it was also great that I had that support system of people willing and able to support me. And, uh, when I came out to Sunnyville with Mountain View at that point in time where we were, I left the Bay Area saying that even if we don't get this contract, I should be out here. This is just more suitable for what I want to do. The environment, you know, the uh, geography, just how people get along here. And fortunately, I didn't have to worry about that because I got the contract. And then about six, uh, maybe eight months into the contract, I converted to a full-time employee. Because our business plan, my friend and I, was that LinkedIn would be one of our clients. We were going to have wellness programs all over the place. And so our SOW initially had me on site like 15 hours a week. I ended up being on site 15 hours a day, every day of the week. And so, <laughs> wow, you know, just, that's a lot of work. So I was teaching classes. I was doing, This is a funny little segue into like our program and the growth of the program. But I had long hair back then. So my hair was like down to my shoulders. I taught uh, a, a 7 a.m., uh, a noon, and a 5 p.m. boot camp style class outdoor. We called it In Shape. We loved playing off of the inward, but it was called in shape. And I was in sweatpants all day, every day, because I wasn't going to change in and out. But I'm also going into meetings and I had this long hair and I end up getting the nickname Fitness Jesus. <laughs> That's good. It was good. <laughs> but it also dawned on me that, and this was one of my fears, I ended up getting my hair cut almost immediately because everyone, I was afraid that everyone was looking at our program as being fitness oriented. You know, your traditional go take more steps, just go to the gym with no mind being paid to the other aspects of, you know, who we are. And especially for those who have never been to the gym, they don't suddenly go to it just because you make it free or you make it really convenient for them. And so I was like, I was really scared. We were going to be looked upon as being like a, you know, a gym fitness program and not an overall wellness program. So I did, I literally got my hair cut um, and really put a lot of emphasis on making sure people knew that our program was for everyone and wasn't just about going to the gym. That's fantastic. So there's that. That was uh, that's my long-winded journey to this point. And that was well, 2011 that we actually began the wellness program. And LinkedIn was about 900 people, and we're about 14,000 people now. That's amazing. And uh, it's, it turns out in the hero's journey that uh, one of the first things that happens when you enter the departure, you meet a mentor. And it sounds to me like your girlfriend was Great Spirit's way of providing you a, a mentor that you could share some intimacy with. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, hands down. Yeah. I totally agree. So now that you're, how long have you been running the wellness program for LinkedIn? So we started it in January of 2011. So we're um, a little over eight years at this point. That's fantastic. How are, how are the employees responding to it? You know, they respond very well to it. And you mentioned it in your intro about, you know, you, when you're at a company like, like, like LinkedIn, 
you have a certain caliber of person that shows up to work. And at the very least, and we make this assumption about our employees, because I used to say, you know, when I'm training someone or working with someone, you first want to understand why they want to do what they're doing, understanding that goal. Like, why are you doing this? And that's challenging to do at scale because you can't ask every individual person what are, what's their purpose, what are they motivated for? And so we took a step back and just said, you know, as you do if you're trying to solve any equation, you have to put some variables in, make some assumptions. And then you can at least execute on what you believe is a proper equation. And so we would make the assumption that LinkedIn employees show up. They are self-motivated. Uh, they want to get a lot of things done, both at work and at home. And we also just know by the demographics of the population that it is generally on the younger side. And so a lot of times population health issues don't really arise. And so we can really focus on everyone here is really um, ambitious. There's a lot of stress that they're under. Uh, let's help build resilience to this inevitable stress that they will go through so that they can be uh, at their best. That message resonated very well with people. Um, and I think also us softening it so it wasn't looked upon as a gym program and introducing breathing programs and understanding and giving people access to what mindfulness is and how to do that. Um, at LinkedIn, we talk about compassionate management. You know, so all these different things really go into what the culture of LinkedIn has been about since its inception. And so it supports itself very well. So LinkedIn employees and our wellness program as its design was, I mean, it really does feel like a match made in heaven in that capacity. That's gorgeous. It's not, you know, it's a very, very interesting journey. And I, I'm, uh, one of the reasons I wanted you to go ahead and expand on it is, is because so many people that come through training at the Czech Institute are still trying to figure themselves out and figure out, you know, how am I going to apply this? Uh, you know, as you can imagine for a lot of them with standard personal trainer certifications or coming from a nursing background or a medical doctor background, because as, as you, I'm sure you know, we're a multidisciplinary education yes. system. So we have everything you can imagine in the system. And a lot of people are, are kind of in a transition point where they're not really sure what they want to do and often aren't really sure who they are yet mm -hmm. and so what i what i do what i like to, sh to share and and what your story beautifully encapsulates is that if we just get still and listen to our heart and listen to our bodies and our emotions then we get that sense of when we're uncomfortable and and it was clear in listening to you there you were aware of when you started getting uncomfortable at many different points in your journey on the way to the getting the contract with LinkedIn. So it's a really important process. Now, it, what, what I wanted to share also is that listening to you, you've done a lot of different jobs. You've had a lot yeah. of different exposures. Have you ever had the realization at this point in your life and your career that somehow each one of those stops along the way gave you skills that you needed to do what you're doing now? Every single one of them, literally every single one from working at a comedy club to working at an outdoor advertising agency and understanding how media buys work, selling billboards and telephone kiosks and bus ads, um, how to generate leads, how to measure things online, people's interaction with, you know, a lead form or a wellness program. Uh, understand the importance of data. You know, that math background, <clears throat> excuse me, that math background that I was solid in as a high schooler, never really wanted to get into, still came back to really help me. I remember, 
you know, even when I was an accounting major, learning uh, what is now Excel, but I mean, back then it was called like Lotus one, two, three, but learning how to write code in those little, that comes in handy even today, all the way back to all of it, you know, coaching it all. I would never could have dreamed it up. I never would have imagined it. I never could have. I, I think we're limited at times if we think that we're going to create the puzzle pieces as opposed to just, like you said, uncovering all of the things that are blocking us from knowing who we really are. Uh, and everything does unfold as it should. Yeah. That, uh, you know, in my, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to it. I'm sure you're very busy, but I, I did a series of five podcasts on the Evolve series. I did Evolve physically, Evolve emotionally, Evolve mentally, Evolve spiritually. Then the final one was Evolve Your Career. And I talked about my own path and all the different things that I did and how you get to a certain point where you realize there's this magic golden thread that ties all these experiences together. And so part of what I'm wanting to share through this podcast for those people that are younger people or people that are in a midlife transition or a job transition is to really just have the confidence that there is a bigger plan, a, you know, you can call it a world plan or a universal plan or a spiritual plan or a divine plan, depending on a person's belief system. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it turns out to being aware of, present with, and listening to the feedback that we're getting from the environment, from the people around us, from our own inner state. You know, oftentimes people are running around to doctors and therapists with all sorts of digestive troubles and back aches and neck aches and headaches, and they don't realize that's their own psyche trying to get their attention to say, yeah. pay attention. You're, you're, you know, we have to digest our emotions and we have to digest our thoughts and our own dreams. And if we are, aren't paying attention to our dreams or to the environment, then we have indigestion or we have physical problems that turn out to correlate to the psychological themes expressed via the chakra system, which is what I call the rainbow bridge of the psyche. So it's, it's great to hear a story like yours where you went from step to step and each of them gave you something, but you ultimately found that sense of discomfort, moved on, and it led you to exactly where you're supposed to be doing what is probably the most ideal thing for you to do at this time in the world. Absolutely. No, everything you said is 100% true. You know, I, I kind of look at that from two lenses as well. One is my own journey, but then also as the director of the wellness program and helping people find their journey and uncover it. And also leading in from a business perspective, because at the end of the day, people are there to work and it is a place of business to be careful not to lead in with too much about things that aren't necessarily business related, but helping people open their eyes to their own journey. Um, I remember there was a story of, uh, I used to, we used to do these walk and talks. So I used to lead those in shape classes, but for something less intense, um, I would do these walk and talks. So I would go on this pathway, they would go out into the bay. And one day I was walking with uh, three different individuals and we were talking about you know, what someone's goals are. And you know, my job, my role in that issue, asking that question also was partly to have them, mainly have them talk so I can see if we're going too fast or too slow. And this woman, you could tell she kind of maybe wasn't really thinking about it. She said, you know, her goal was to lose some weight. And we started to get a little deeper and, you know, get a little bit on that smart goal setting and like, you know, getting specific and measurable and timely and all of that. 
So she says a certain amount of weight that she wants to lose. And she says when she wants to lose a buy. And it's all kind of, you know, sound. It would fit onto a little template spreadsheet about goal achievement. And then a few weeks later, I kind of followed up with her on another walk and talk. And she was kind of testy with me in her response about that weight loss goal. And I was like, what? I didn't, that was your goal. You told me that's what you wanted to do. And she said, that's not what I want to do. That's what my husband wants me to do. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not, I go, I can't help you with that part. But what we uncovered through that, and this is a microcosm, I think of the bigger aspect is what she wanted to do was to stop working crazy hours, to eat better and to sleep better. Because she lived in San Francisco. She would drive to Mountain View. Traffic was horrendous. Uh, we have a great food program now, but back then we would cater food every day. There really wasn't like great food options necessarily. She didn't know how to cook. Neither one of them liked to shop. So she would generally eat In-N-Out Burger or like cheap Chinese food at a restaurant in her neighborhood. And that's what she wanted to deal with. And her work-life balance was just totally you know, askew. She had these ridiculous hours and long days in cars. And so we put our attention on that. You know, let's identify what it is that you want to do. And so you know, to talk to your manager about maybe you can work one day a week from home. And she was granted that. And, you know, at that time, there were food, these now rather ubiquitous food service deliveries or dropping food off either ready to be cooked or to cook. Those were kind of newer. It was like, maybe you can try one of those out. So food's just at your house. And there's really basic directions on how to do it. Uh, and that'll kind of kill all these different... And she did that. And she found that. But uh, you know, she had to kind of uncover these other aspects of what she thought she was pursuing to arrive at what she truly wanted to pursue. Yes. That was this nice little capture. Yeah. You know, uh, countless times in my work as a therapist and, um, you know, people coming to me for various challenges, many of which were women with weight problems, either too skinny and wanting to put on some muscle and just look better or too heavy. Um, I found very frequently that, when I owned a physical therapy clinic and worked in physical therapy clinics, that one of the main sources of our patients was workmen's comp injuries and people who had insurance through their work and had various problems. And I learned right off the bat by monitoring my patients that the people that came there because they were sent there by their boss or by somebody else, or I used to get flight attendants that were overweight and they used to have much stricter weight limitations for flight attendants that when those people come because someone else is sending them, they're very hard to make progress with because they really don't want to be there. And almost always their health and weight challenges are, are, are really their psyche saying, you're not happy doing this. You shouldn't keep doing it, whether it be, you know, being in the marriage that they're in or the, the boyfriend, girlfriend, or the job they're in or the area that they're living in. So, what I did back then, I was studying a lot of work by Zig Ziglar on goal setting and, and various things like that. And uh, I started saying to them, well, now that you're here, what can we do together that would be just for you? Maybe you know, I get a lot of women whose husbands were complaining and saying things like, oh, your butt's too big. I'm not attracted to you anymore. And that would just really upset them. And then, of course, maybe they'd read one of my articles in, you know, Muscle and Fitness Magazine or Muscle Media 2000 or one of these things. And you should go see this guy. And so I would say to them, well, now that you're here, what would you like to do? We can let your husband think this is for him or your boss think this is for them. 
And then I would get into what they wanted. And inevitably, we'd still get them in great shape and get rid of their pain or whatever. But they would find this sense of connection and joy. And they were always so excited that I was actually interested in what they wanted, not just accomplishing some objective. And I think that's that's a really critical concept for people to understand that are in the any aspect of the healthcare profession or exercise or wellness profession. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you've been following my work for any length of time at all, you know how important organic food and organic farming is, not only for the health of the soil and to protect all the little beings in nature from toxic chemicals and throwing nature completely out of balance, which directly affects us, but also for our own health and well-being. We all need nutrient-dense foods for body-mind well-being. And I'm so excited about the Organifi line. Organifi is a product line made of certified organic source materials. And I've checked this out personally. I can guarantee you that. One of my favorites that I've recently tried is their red juice, which has acai and cordyceps infused into it. It's a super, super tasty product. And it revitalizes skin cells, supports your metabolism, has antioxidants in it, age-fighting nutrients, helps mental clarity. It's got a lovely natural sweet flavor. And something that I found really interesting, if you go to Organifi.com and look up the red juice, they show you a price per serving comparison against Palm Wonderful, Red Bull, Gatorade, and a Starbucks latte. And Organifi red juice is actually significantly more cost-effective considering not only the price, but the density of the nutrients in it. I think you'll be really amazed with this red juice, along with all their other products. If you go to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and as you're checking out, use the code lowercase c-h-e-k-20 altogether, you will get a 20% discount on your Organifi purchases. I'm super excited to share this company. I've tested their products. My family's tested their products, and we're all behind them. And I know you're going to be satisfied because this is the real deal. This is true nutrition. Check it out. As you check out, C-H-E-K-20 to get your discount. Thanks for joining me. Hope you to continue to enjoy the podcast. And if you love it, share it with as many people as you can. Well, I don't know if you said it. I quote you a lot on a couple of different, um, they'll come out as we chat today, the different ones that I use all the time. But I don't know if this was you or maybe you use it or someone else come up with it, but about um, you know identifying what somebody wants, but giving them what they need. That's Paul Check, man. Tell them what they want to hear, but give them what they need. There you go. Yep. And so, I mean, that is, I think, totally hits the point of what, what you just made and how as practitioners in the wellness space, we need to be able to temper our approach, be flexible, be adaptable, um, give people that sweetness, if you will, of what draws them into it, but ultimately still get them to the place that they well, they want to go, uh, helping them identify that. So yes, yeah, I use that one all the time. The other one is if you, uh, if you don't take care of yourself, you go from being a trainer to being a drainer. Yeah. <laughs> and I use that with our managers. When I do a lot of work with just like management groups, it's kind of like, you know, you have responsibility for these individuals that are on your teams. And you need to care for yourself so that you can be there to support them. You know, that makes conversations can go awry because we haven't cared for ourselves. You know, nothing bad theoretically has happened, but our mood is a bit deteriorated. And 
we're more curt in a response when we're frustrated. And we have a saying at LinkedIn, what's more than a saying as part of our cultural and values is, you know, relationships matter. And being conscious of the way that we prepare ourselves so that we can present ourselves uh, at any given time as our best self, uh, relationships thrive in those types of environments. And um, so, yeah, there's another one of your sayings I use all the time. Well, I'm glad to hear that I can support you that way. You know, one of the things that it's easy to see regarding health and exercise professionals that aren't really inspired because they're more of a rent a friend than an actual authentic teacher or guide is how long does it take you to walk into any significantly decent sized gym to see trainers that are standing there work uh, tapping away on their phone while somebody's doing a set of exercise i see it all the time and it's like oh my god this is just shocking to see so I'm curious, what are the values that LinkedIn expresses as a company that that uh, you know that you seem to harmonize with, or I imagine you wouldn't be there? Yeah, well, you know, so the company's vision is to create economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. So that's what we strive through to do through our products, you know, and you know the product line at LinkedIn is obviously like a free membership that people or subscription that people can have. There's upgraded uh, subscriptions. There's obviously job search opportunities. Uh, the biggest, I think, opportunity also is around our LinkedIn learning platform because that helps people fill in the gaps they may have to obtain a better job or a job that they would rather have. So our vision is around creating economic opportunity for every member of the global workforce. And as our CEO always talks about, like your vision is aspirational. You'll, you'll probably never accomplish your vision, but it's what you're always constantly working towards. That's your your true north. That's you know where we set our, our north star towards. And then on a more practical level, we talk about our mission, which is to connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. And that obviously is much more tangible. You can say, you know, how many more people do you have on a platform? How many people are actually, you know, getting new jobs, making connections, advancing their careers, helping other people? Um, and so to me, you know, if we want to do those things as a company, well, first and foremost, I think it starts with the fact that when people come to work at LinkedIn, they know what the what the purpose is. And they may not know what their purpose is yet, but they know what the purpose they serve as a professional uh, working at LinkedIn. So that's that's a big start because you can at least at the very least you have something to teach from. You have a, a, a comparison point to someone. Say, here's what we do as an organization. How do we apply those principles to you as an individual? I always like to make the analogy that you know the, an organization is equivalent to a human being where the employees of the organization are equivalent to the cells of that human being. And so just as a human body is not well when its cells aren't well, a company is not well when its employees aren't. Yes. And so uh, to me, that, that, that's, to me, that's a great, I feel like I can teach on just about any point. If you give me something I can make an analogy to, I feel comfortable making those. I feel like they resonate with folks. So one, first and foremost is that aspect of having that, what we're working to strive to accomplish as a company and having that North star. The other part is about, we want to make people productive and successful. And when you really get it, I even talk about what is wellness, you know, wellness, what is wellness to one person is not to somebody else. And so it's allowing people to have their own definition of it, uh, not bastardizing it into something that it isn't like, Oh, I'm well and I'm happy and Doritos make me happy. Therefore Doritos are wellness. That's not something we would subscribe to, but you know, Understanding that, you know, success, 
uh, happiness, wellness, those mean something different to everybody. And allowing people to learn within that so that they don't feel like they have to achieve something that is above them or they feel this doesn't interest them. Um, our program allows people to do that. So again, helping people be productive and successful to me, that is like the baseline of what we have an opportunity to do. And unlike those folks who you mentioned that show up because, you know, their spouse or their employer said, you need to go do this particular thing. I used to have a client at that Equinox and he didn't want to be there. The guy did not want to be there. And he would argue with me over rep counts. I mean, that's all we did. <laughs> He's like, that was 15. I'm like, it wasn't, but fine. Like, I don't care. Yeah, I, I don't care. Like, you don't care. I, why should I? Yeah. But that, that was that. But people show up wanting to do well. And so it just is, my job is easy. I love it. It's great. I feel it's very impactful, but also to, it comes very easy to me. It's a great environment to do it within. And it's just, to me, they just perpetually support themselves. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, I'm curious how your training with the Czech Institute helped you improve what you offer your clients as the director of LinkedIn's health and wellness program. And when I'm asking that question, I'm, I would say, put it in the perspective, if you had not gotten the training from the Czech Institute, but had all the other certifications and programs you mm -hmm. had, uh, what, what is your Czech Institute training given you that allows you to really move more from fitness into wellness and having a more holistic approach? Absolutely. Uh, so one, I would say in short, it does just gives you a holistic approach. So it's more appealing. It's much more of a total wellness program. So the previous, you know, certifications I had from the NASM and NSCA, they're solid. They're great. If you learn what they teach, you know, if you want to be a strength coach, again, like I, I think the CSCS is probably the most widely accepted certification for strength coaches on professional sports teams and universities. Um, that's great for that aspect of training, of making muscles bigger, of getting people to run faster and all of that. Um, but if it wasn't for what I learned through the Czech Institute, both formally, meaning the, meaning the certifications I have gotten, but also informally through people I know that have certifications and learning all that, um, just taught me this much more well-rounded approach and gave me the tools to be more well-rounded. You know, we may have the best of intentions when we go to help someone think we're being well-rounded, but if our arrow in our quiver is a single arrow and it only shoots one way, then that's the only thing we're ever going to be able to help people with. And so, you know, it opened one, it opened up avenues for me to learn more about. I also look at it as a, from a program perspective, our six tenets, I look at them as six individual entry points into the wellness program. And then you can change, then you can inter, you can market people across them. But we build gyms on site at our larger offices, and those are great. They're beautiful. They're state-of-the-art. Um, they're much a trainer's gym. The only machine I allow in our gyms, aside from treadmills, and, uh, are, is an assisted pull-up machine. Because we really want to emphasize people uh -huh. you know, moving away from just the vanity muscles and really you know, strengthening the back. So our gyms are great, and they're very crowded. Um, and so there definitely is a great return for LinkedIn on investing in them. But I'm also willing to bet that the vast majority of those people already had the gym habit. We made it convenient for them. We made it easy. And that's great. That's part of our goal as well. But I highly doubt that we took anyone who was just, you know, a rat, you know, very deconditioned, a non-mover, and they suddenly goes, oh, there's a gym downstairs. I'm not going to start going. Not that it never happens, but I'm not willing to bet a lot of money that that happens that often. So how do you reach that person? You know, how do you get in front of them and let them know there's all the different kinds of ways? And so one example is, 
creating a lot of online content around breathing and helping people understand that yeah. your sales calls are better when you learn how to use your breath as a mechanism to identify stress or whatever, and also a way to bring it down. Um, so again, learning those principles also allowed me to have more to offer people as a program. You know, someone comes in and says, I'm dealing with this. It's like, well, what do you like to do? Which for, you know, those like you talked about, well, I don't want to go to the gym. It's like, well, you don't have to go to the That's the biggest thing I tell people all the time. Like, you don't have to go to the gym. You know, you don't have to. No. You know, you need to move. Like, our bodies are designed to be in motion. So we don't want to necessarily, we don't want to be too static. Um, but you don't have to go to the gym. Uh, but, and the other thing that learning through your institute has provided me is a a platform to further my own learning uh, because there's so much to learn across all of those different aspects of who we are. But many times we just don't know where to start. And so it's like a launching pad to me into all these different aspects of things. Through learning stuff from the Check Institute, I've come across, so there's three books, well, actually four books. Eat, Move, and Be Healthy is one I recommend and give as a gift all the time to people. I think it's just, a, again, it gives people a really great baseline to start from. And other books that I was turned on to through learning from Czech Institute was a book called um, The Joy of Living Dangerously, um, uh, The Wisdom of Insecurity, and um, Nonviolent Nonviolent Communication. Yeah, is Wisdom of Insecurity. That's Alan Watts, isn't it? Yes. And Nonviolent Communication is Marshall Rosenberg. Yep. Another one, I don't know if you're familiar with this book. It's uh, called Nonviolent Communication, The Basics as I Know and Use Them by Wayland Myers, PhD. It, it's a little pocketbook. It's about quarter size. It fit right in your pocket. But it, it is an absolutely invaluable asset because it takes nonviolent communication, which I'm sure you know is a radically different way to communicate, mm -hmm. but it breaks it down into simple, applicable chunks that anybody can practice with and build with and it's it's just an uh, it's, it's my all-time favorite nonviolent communication book i'm going to get that thanks for the recommendation yeah i think you'll dig it and it's a great again a great book for gifts it's uh it's a real life transformer because it takes that whole concept and brings it down into chunks and simple applicable tools that anybody can use and get good results with that's great. You know, and I love, so we, one thing we really emphasize too with people. So we put on workshops, whether it be for larger groups of, you know, individuals that sign up or more like a specific team, uh, an engineering team or a sales team comes in for, for a session. Um, and I always tell my teammates, my team members as well, that, you know, we can give people all the best information in the world, but what we ultimately have to do is allow them to leave that session with a strategy that works for them. Um, and when they have that, when they have tools, resources, and a strategy of how to use them, they'll do it. It'll happen for them. And, you know, uh, we teach them. So we've really spent a lot of time also like really teaching people how to tap into themselves, how to identify the signals the body is giving them to mitigate um, issues that may arise from not paying attention to them. Yes. And as you can see, I put information like that right in how to eat move and be healthy so that people could see oh you know this low back pain might have something to do with financial stress or yep. my digestive problems might be pointing to the fact that i'm unsure of who i am or how i'm applying my capacity to will to do things right so and then i put the piano spine in there which used to be on page 121 i think showing 
where each of the organs connects to the spine and, and which muscles are involved so that people can say, oh, you know, I keep having this chronic hamstring problem. Maybe I've actually got something going on with my colon. And oh, by the way, I've been constipated for months now, uh, specifically to help people realize that the body is a holistic system and the mind and the body are really mirrors of each other. And, and so it's fantastic for me to hear that you're practicing these approaches that I teach through the Czech Institute, as well as all the other instructors, because I love hearing that people out there in the workforce and in the world are getting access to such holistic information at a time in the evolution of humanity when they really need it. Yeah, <laughs> we really do. We really do. You know, uh, in some of the background information Penny gave me, I found this uh, statement here. The LinkedIn Health and Wellness Program is built around the three pillars, fitness, nutrition, and wellness. Our mission is to provide LinkedIn employees, their families, and communities with the motivation, education, and offerings to attain a healthier, more productive lifestyle. Our goal is to help each individual achieve optimal performance in all that they do so that they are more likely to achieve their goals, both professional and personal. So I would love it if maybe you in your own way could go through a few definitions for me. First of all, how do you define fitness? Sure. Um, so to me, fitness personally is uh, about my body and how I'm able to move and move pain-free. And I've had multiple knee surgeries and I have arthritis in one of my knees and no cartilage in another. And so you know, to me, sometimes fitness is just being able to move about freely, you know, nothing over the top. Um, and it really is the fitness of how it connects my mind to my body and vice versa. And so it's really, to me, is being that, you know, fitness it has with it um, a level of uh, stamina, uh, whether that be, you know, mental fitness that allows you to have good energy throughout an entire day and, and contribute to conversations and you know, answer people's questions, um, all the way down to the physical fitness, which a lot of times for me is really limited, not limited, but boiled down to something as basic as to be able to move around, not move around pain-free just to walk to the bathroom, but to actually move around and be active in a pain-free way. Yes, but I also I, want to be open to how other people's definitions of fitness in my, my role, but that's how I look at it personally. I really define fitness as the ability to effectively engage your work, home, sports, and dream environment. So, you know, when I'm working with clients, I, I want to identify, you know, what is the home environment? Do they have to climb up and down stairs? Do they live somewhere with a steep driveway where they have to carry garbage, pull garbage cans up steep hills? What sporting activities do they like to enjoy? And, and what is their dream? For example, you know, you get a lot of executives who want to do something significant like climb Mount Kilimanjaro or complete a triathlon. So when I'm looking at what fitness is, I define it as the ability to engage your environment effectively so that you can, A, accomplish those objectives, but B, not find yourself with injuries because you're not fit enough to interface your own environment. Yeah. I like your definition. Yours is more succinct too. Well, I'm here to support you. <laughs> how how do you define nutrition? Uh, so eating real food. And so 
I love mantras. I think it's really important for people. I always say to people, you know, your knowledge will not override your emotions. And I think a perfect example of that is, you know, food. Um, and I think about our break rooms and where there are a mix of things that are not quote unquote healthy, but we always tell people you can like life should be enjoyed, not endured. You can have that thing that doesn't fit the qualifications of being, um, you know, good for you. As long as that does not become the primary source of your nutrition of, of the, of the calories you're consuming. Uh, so to me, nutrition is eating real food. Um, and then we define real food as things that were picked, pulled, slaughtered, or caught. And so a little joke I always say is that there are no muffin bushes. So <laughs> yeah, I love it. Pick, pulled, slaughtered, or caught. That's very good, really. Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed with that one. I might have to quote you on that one. Please do. Yeah. And um, so to me, it's about that. It's a level of, you know, again, taking, go, can you find that thing in nature? And then also minimally processed, right? Because some would go, well, I this thing was picked off of a tree, but it's been bleached and pasteurized and homogenized and you know it's like well let's eat real food pick pulled slaughtered or caught as minimally processed as possible and the guide i give people is you should be able to do it in your kitchen yeah um, i go unless you have a walter white facility somewhere you're probably not pasteurizing things in your house so whatever you can do in your kitchen on your cutting board on your stovetop in your oven that's the level of you know processing that ideally we put our food through Do you work in the health or fitness profession? What was your dream when you started? Did you want a career where you could really impact someone else's life in a profound way and the satisfaction of knowing that you do good and important work? When you watch your clients succeed, when you see them smash their PR, finally living pain-free or fitting into their dream wedding dress, did you feel that immense sense of being alive and rooted in your life's purpose? Our check train professionals feel that sense and they feel it often. And it's because they're mastering a powerful system of holistic health created by Paul Check, a system that gives them deep insights into human health and performance and the tools to help their clients reach their goals like no other system. Now you can learn that system yourself through the Czech Academy, the most structured, comprehensive and affordable way to complete the entire Czech system of training. The Czech Academy structures all of Paul's books, correspondence courses, and live advanced training programs into a digestible monthly learning program, enabling you to absorb every drop of knowledge while still maintaining your own business. Plus, you'll be supported by a mentor, get business training, and have an entire community of passionate Academy students on the same journey as you. That means you'll be able to implement everything you learn and grow your practice into a flourishing business that supports your dreams. It's all available to you starting now for an affordable monthly fee. Ready to apply? Visit us at checkacademy.com to get started. That's checkacademy.com. Now, back to Paul. Yes, as you know, I, I teach people nutrition begins with the health of the soil. So if you're not getting foods that come from healthy soils, and what, then you're already in trouble. But one of the kind of the conundrums of our uh, scientific materialist culture is everybody thinks that they can eat supplements to compensate yeah. eating junk. Yep. And they don't realize that, you know, 98% of all the supplements sold in the world are really concentrates of commercially farmed uh, plants and, and produce and 
And so there's no way to remove the pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. And now that we have issues with glyphosate, glyphosate actually penetrates the cell. So there, yep. you cannot get those things out of there. And those pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, rodenticides, and glyphosate are in almost every single thing you can purchase. And then the most dangerous of all for um, genetically modified organisms turns out to be spices. And people are very unconscious of that. Often people ask me, what's the best book that I recommend on nutrition? And I always recommend, aside from my own book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Weston A. Price, because I think it's just the most amazing encapsulation of what nutrition really is. And it shows how historically, even all the way back in the late 30s and early 40s, when tribal people started interacting with uh, white men, mostly trappers, people coming to you know kill animals and sell their skins, they were offering, often carrying um, flour with them, processed white flour. Hmm. And, and uh, have you seen Weston Price's book? I know of the foundation and some of his books, not that book in particular. Yeah, it's, I think it's really worth you getting. It, even if you don't have time to read, it's a big book. It's, it's quite a read. But just looking at the pictures and kind of picking up on what he's showing and let your inner self guide you to the key places to read. But it's pretty mind-boggling. He shows it within as little as a year. You, you can see actually in, in the first generation of offspring from natives that switch from eating their natural foods from their environment to eating any kind of processed food whatsoever. Remember, this is all the way back in the early, late 30s, early 40s. He showed that the kids were uh, being born with craniofacial disorders. Their teeth weren't fitting together. Their, the um, orthopedic uh, structure of their skull, there's what's called the rule of thirds. It says from your bottom of your nose to the bottom of your chin should be the same length as the bottom of your nose to between your eyes, which should be the same length as between your eyes to your hairline. Huh. And that's called the craniofacial rule of thirds. But he showed right away within one generation of uh, natives eating any kind of processed foods that the craniofacial rule of thirds was being distorted. And one of the most common things that you see is that the middle third is short. So the maxillary arch, the upper teeth get crowded and that means that the airways are too small. So people like that can't breathe effectively through their nose. And so they end up having to breathe with their mouth open all the time, which triggers a sympathetic response and leaves them in a perpetual fight or flight state. And lo and behold, what do we have today? Millions yep. of people with disrupted craniofacial growth and development who are constantly breathing through their mouth while simultaneously eating a lot of processed foods that trigger an immune reaction which fills their nasal passages with phlegm which stops them from breathing and so and then whenever you have to breathe through your mouth like that your body brings your head down and forward to drop the jaw to give you access to more air and the next thing you know you've got forward head posture rounded shoulders and you couple that with people with the number one workplace in the world today is the seated workplace so mm -hmm. it sets people up for a, a whole chain of, yeah. of disorders and you know, I, I define uh, nutrition through what you know and, and, you know, you and I would know of as doctor diet. And yep. so, you know, my definition of nutrition is in the song, doctor diet, build your temple, a body for your mind. We raise and eat our food with love. It makes our chemistry. Add good water and a smile. Be filled with energy. Eat good organics and be wise. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. Yum, yum. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> bravo bravo so you know we, 
that's saying that's saying you are what you eat. You know, I bring that up a lot with people because I think you know we've always heard that when since we're little, and I think maybe because we've heard it for so long, or it seems too basic. I, but I really try to emphasize that with people. It's like just think about like what the transformation process is of this item that you're consuming turning into you, and have a little just have a little respect have a little respect for that. Uh, but yeah, uh, you are what you eat. A very valuable mantra there as well. You know, I look at people's diet logs all the time, as you can imagine, and have been for a very long time. And one of the things that I do to awaken people is I'll say, okay, you, you drink, you're drinking three cans of Coca-Cola a day. I'm just curious. Do you, how do you think you're going to do turning that into an eyeball or into a lining in your stomach or replacing your bone cells? Do you have any concept of how you could take processed water and 12 teaspoons of sugar, processed sugar yeah. and turn that into your own body, knowing that research now shows that we turn over every cell in our body every year? It used yeah. to be thought it was every seven years, but now the research shows it's actually every year. And we're turning over 2 million red blood cells a second. We're turning over our epidermis, our skin cells, every three days our bone cells about every three to four weeks. And, and so people have this sort of um, unconscious idea that their body's like a fixed system, like a machine that just goes on forever. But I tell people, imagine that you're walking into a park that has a huge water fountain in it. Have you ever seen one like that? And of course they say, yes. I say, well, if you've noticed at a distance, it looks like a tree made of ice or something. But as you approach it, you realize it's moving. And I, of course, they say, yes. I said, well, your body is a fountain like that. It's a, it's a yeah. constant flow of movement. And just like the water drops shoot up the column and then go back into the well, your cells that make your body are like the well, but they're constantly shooting up and out because they each have a shelf life. And there's a constant turnover. And what they're being made out of is what you're eating and drinking. Yeah. And that simple analogy really wakes people up quite a bit absolutely no it's a powerful one it's a that's a really good one how do you define wellness we touched on it a little bit but uh if you had to encapsulate it into a statement what would you define it as well you know so when we first started the program at linkedin it was called health and wellness and now we just call it wellness and we removed the health part you know now the main driver of that was not because we don't care about people's health but no. Specifically in the U.S., you know, health then follows health care, and you have ideas of doctors and insurance and all those sorts of things. So for us, when we focus just on wellness, what I and my team do are things that, in short, you don't need a doctor to do. You don't need to. It's about how you treat your mind and how you hydrate and how you breathe and how you eat and how you move and how you sleep, and then being attentive to that. Um, so to me, wellness is caring for yourself in a way that is natural, uh, in a way that allows you to achieve the things that you want to achieve and doesn't leave any one thing behind. You know, with our program, I make the analogy of the six tenets to people at a time of uh, sunlight, soil, and water. I always ask people who in here has grown or killed a plant, and that usually covers everybody in the room. And it's like, you know, a plant, if you give it those three things, it's going to be well. And now every plant is different. So now you get into the differences of the sunlight, the soil, and the water for a respective plant. And that gets a little bit more tricky. But as a whole, if we give plants sunlight, soil, and water, they will grow. Now, if we don't give it one of those things, typically a plant will wilt away and die. 
I go, we're a little bit more dynamic than plants. So we have six things that we should be focusing on. But just like the plant, if you give it these things, you will be well without the concern. Just get out of your own way. Take care of yourself in this capacity. Uh, and you ultimately will be well. And unlike a plant, if we neglect one of those six tenets because the body is insanely resilient and from a survival perspective, um, you don't have this like maybe this dramatic negative effect. And so we allow ourselves to sort of wallow in mediocrity, not get to where we're going or where we, where we want to go uh, because we happen to be neglecting one of those you know, vital aspects of ourselves. Yes. I pretty much define wellness as the ability to engage one's creativity and the challenges natural to life and the creation of one's dreams effectively. In other words, if you're not well, then you get debilitated physically, emotionally, or mentally, and it usually increases the likelihood that you abort your dream. Mm -hmm. And when you look at things like, you know, uh, most of us uh, that have been around for a while know that even a relationship with somebody that you love comes with a fair bit of work after the uh, drunkenness of the sex wears off. Then, then there's the real relationship. And then, you know, we have challenges at work. We have people to interact with. We have, you know, fluctuations in money flow. Uh, you know, there's so many dynamic elements to life that if we're not well, then we end up in a crisis. Mm -hmm which is why I tell people, if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. And, and the only way to uh, really inspire a person to maintain nutrition, hydration, sleep, breathing, thinking, and movement as part of their daily practice is to help them realize that to live your dream requires full participation. And if you're lacking wellness, then you're basically decreasing your freedom and Typically, when people realize that lack of wellness means decrease in freedom, yeah. they get more inspired because, I mean, I think most of us, look, America is called the land of the free, right? And, and yeah. if, if people realize that a lot of the ways that they're living and the things that they're eating are actually stopping them from being free, then I find that they get much more inspired towards the concept of wellness. Absolutely. I can see that. What would you define optimal performance as? Oh, I mean, to me, it is doing the things you want to do um, as well as they can be done. And that, you know, extends from, you know, personal physical achievement. We had someone on our, at our company complete an Ironman uh, the other day. So uh, to me, that was something that he, you know, strived for. Great story that he has is he did his first triathlon about a year ago, maybe even less than that. But when he signed up for his first triathlon, he didn't know how to swim. And I had him, I actually host a talk show on site at LinkedIn and we have I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have, he was a guest on the show once and, uh, we talked about goal setting, you know, and how many times people will say, well, I'll, they have these conditional goals. I'll, I'll do that. But after I do this, and then that's always an excuse why you don't do that because you never got to this. And so he was like, I don't know how to swim, but if I always said to myself, well, I'll do the triathlon when I learn how to swim, I probably never would have learned how to swim. And so he put the goal out in front and achieved it all that. So to me, that's one level of optimal performance is that physical aspects of, of, of accomplishment and achievement. Um, and I think it's helping solve all the way down to, you know, helping people solve problems, you know, uh, being really good at what your job is, uh, being a great parent or partner, uh, a great friend, a great colleague, and always 
to the best of our abilities, being at our best more times than not. Yes, I think the key thing with optimal performance, you know, I'm sure you're very well coming from a background of, of athletics and football and all, all the kinds of things we do as young uh, men trying to, you know, express ourselves. Our culture is very trapped in, in shortcuts to optimal performance, such as steroids and, you know, yeah. testosterone boosters and piles of supplements that promise magic results and creatine and all this other stuff that I almost always have to completely get out of the athletes' diets that come see me because they don't realize till I take it out of their diet. I put them on a seven day caveman diet, which is no nuts, no grains, no seeds, no dairy, no supplements, no drugs, unless they are uh, things that have to be taken due to a medical condition or a doctor's prescription. But in all my years of doing that, I've never had a single athlete come back to me or patient and not say, oh my God, I feel so much better. Why was I taking all that stuff? Mm -hmm. And I tell them, because you believe what you read, you believe advertisements and you forget that athletes marketing that stuff are making a hell of a lot of money and most of them don't even use the stuff. And I can tell you that for sure because I've coached more elite athletes than I can even count or remember. But my point is for me, optimal performance really is not optimal unless it's sustainable. Sure. You know, I'm 57 years old and I can still outrun and outlift most of the professional <laughs> athletes that come to me for right. help and it, it freaks them out. Or, you know, I've got a, I got a son that's going to be 40 wow. this summer and a lot of these guys are, you know, 20, 21, 22 years old and, and I take them out and lift rocks with them and they can't even budge rocks that I pick <laughs> up and put chest height. And they, I, I, one time I was in uh, Gold's Gym years ago with my, my son. And I don't know, this is probably uh, maybe uh, 1992 or 93, somewhere back in the, that time. And I can't, uh, I can't remember his full name. It's a, a Russian name. He was a, a Mr. Olympia. Uh, he, he won Mr. Olympia. His name was Nasir. And his last name's hard to pronounce, El Sambatoy uh -huh. or something like that. But he was a huge, huge guy. I mean, like 320 pound, jacked on steroids. And I used to, some a couple of times I got to the gym, either when he was just coming into the gym or coming out. And he used to drive this RX-7 sports car, Mazda RX-7. And I remember a couple of times just standing there on the steps, watching him try to get in and out of his car just getting in and out of his car, he would just literally start hyperventilating. He would be winded, right? It was just like everything he could do to get in and out of his car. Well, one day I, I walked in the gym and it was my day to do my lunge training. And he was, uh, there was a couple of open cages and my son and I started training and he showed up when I was uh, lunging 185 on the bar. And, um, so he was looking at me and I saw, I noticed he was kind of staring at me and I thought, I don't know, maybe he knows who I am or whatever. Right. And so I kept going up and wait and I got to where I was doing sets of lunges with 225 on the bar and he walks up to me and taps me on the shoulder. He says in his thick Russian accent, what, what drugs you use? You are very, very strong for such a small man. And I looked at him and smiled and I said, oh. The, the names of my drugs, they're really hard to pronounce, but I'll let you have a try. Can you say carrot, tomato, chicken? 
And he got upset with me. He says, oh, no, no, you don't play games with me. I have a PhD in microbiology or, or something like that, you know, one of the hard sciences. Yeah. You using some drugs. I said, no, I'm not. I just know how to train. And he just shook, walked away shaking his head. He thought I was just pulling it over his eyes. <laughs> but and me and my son still laugh about that. But and, 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 and he could not get past about 185 pounds on the bar. Right? Right. He was struggling with 185. And what people don't realize is most of that muscle is chemically induced. A lot of these guys can barely work out. Yeah, I can imagine. There's no stability, nothing to base on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so my point is, is because my level of performance is sustainable, I've been lifting weights since I was 12 years old and I'm still strong and fit and capable as a, and I have to be because I got a three-year-old boy, and boy, yeah. you can work me to death. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to uh, keep yourself fit, just keep having children. <laughs> but uh, how do you define success versus happiness? Uh, well, I think they can be very uh, hard to separate from. But I think ultimately, you know, success are things that they're tangible. You know, you put them on the wall; they're trophies. Uh, and they can be great and they can be worthwhile, but I think happiness is, is much more intangible. Um, not that you can't be happy if you have a great, have great success, but it is, I would say definitely much, much less tangible, um, but much more real. And it's sort of, to me, you, you know it when you have it, it's very hard to describe, but it comes with a level of being content. Yes. And just knowing that and having trust in the universe and your own being that everything is going to be as it should. Yeah. My favorite definition that defines those two comes out of the book Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. If you haven't seen that book, it's really excellent. He was a plastic surgeon that was really into the psychology of success and performance and health. And in his book, he says, success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you get. Yeah, that's good. I you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that are successful. You know, all you got to do is turn on the news. but And you see, you know, everyone from Tiger Woods to the Michael Jacksons of the world to, the, to <laughs> our president to you name it, that have high levels of success, but clearly are not happy people. So. Right. Yep. I think I think the the concept of success being getting what you want but happiness being wanting what you get is yep. is really an important distinction there. A lot of people think that happiness comes with more money but unfortunately they find out the hard way that it doesn't as Joseph Campbell beautifully points out many people spend their whole life working to be successful but they get to the top of the ladder they've been climbing and realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're not happy. How do you define love? Sure. You know, and Paul, just one thing on, on like the, the, you know, money doesn't buy happiness aspect, you know, something for me that, you know, when I didn't have money, uh, so I've been fortunate in my career, you know, I, I am doing well for what I do and, you know, am at a better place now than I've ever been in my life. And that started to come together for me when I stopped worrying about that and obsessing over that but rather doing those things that I wanted to do, living to that happiness. And then it's just sort of ironic, if that's the right use of irony, of how all those things then sort of unfold in front of you. 
when you spend all this well, time I, trying to create it and just let it happen, it does. Well, you know, the, the, well, this leads into our second, uh, our next uh, discussion here on love. But really, just from listening to your story, by following your heart and ultimately doing the things you love to do, not doing what you think you had to do to make money, you got to that place now where the money's coming back. Yep. Uh, I tell people, look, if you do what you love to do, you're you're making love all day. But if you're just working for money, you're making money but you end up spending it on all your health problems and relationship problems. And the other issue is, is love is very magnetic, right? When we're next to somebody, I'm sure you've interviewed and been around people that, are, that truly love what they're doing and they're magnetic people. They're inspirational. They're great examples. And they, they have a level of harmony and authenticity within them yep. that stimulates that harmony in other people. So uh, how would you define love? So I like that you used the word energy there. And I do think that, you know, energy can come in two different ways, but I definitely think it's, it's a warm energy. It's, it's open. It has compassion and perspective for another person. And ultimately, um, it, things within it grow. Um, yes. It is um, anabolic in that capacity. Yes, it's very anabolic. Um, I, you know, because love is such a confusing concept and, and having spent many years studying it, I couldn't find decent definitions. So I spent a lot of time in deep meditation asking my soul to guide me so that I could create a definition for love that people could understand. I was given two of them. One is love is consciousness becoming aware of itself. And I think as we, whenever we're in love or doing what we love to do, then we engage the learning process. We're more open. We're more present. We actually, when we're in love, inherently express the tenets of mindfulness naturally. But if we're doing what we think we have to to make a living, then we're just working for money and we end up having to take mindfulness courses so we don't get fired. <laughs> and I also define love as... Love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self and or other. Love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self and or other. And I think so many people don't realize that whenever we're engaging, like if you're with a person and you're sharing love, we only know we're being loved because the energy feels loving, but the information that's coming with the energy inspires connection. And the more we inspire connection, the more we inspire sharing. And to love, we have to be empathetic. We have to be able to feel the other person. Mm -hmm. And to be compassionate means to understand. So when you think of what it takes to be a parent, to be a parent, you have to have the ability to give your children the energy and information they need to grow themselves and to feel safe and to engage the world and to enjoy doing it. And we have to have the ability to feel their, their needs and to understand them. And we have to have compassionate uh, engagement because children go through a lot of challenges, especially when they become teenagers. And if we don't share compassion with them, then we usually treat them like employees. And, and that often leads to kids that are on all sorts of drugs for, uh, you know, behavioral problems and 
attention deficit problems and all sorts of other things, which is quite rampant in the world right now, as I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah, it is. How would you define spirituality? Well, I think it's a, I think spirituality for me um, is really an appreciation for the connectedness that we all share uh, beyond just the physical connectedness of, you know, consumption of food and waste production and fertilizer and regrowing things, but that whole, how we are all interconnected beyond um, ourselves and just being aware of all the influences that have brought this life into existence. Yes. I simply define spirituality as the ability to connect to a greater whole. Yep. So, you know, when, when we share love or share companionship or work with people, then our world expands to include their world. When we realize how much joy we get out of our backyard and the plants in our house and our pets, then our, our sense of self expands to include the plants and the animals. Then it can expand to, you know, we can go from maybe being a Christian and believing that other people have religious values that are wrong to going through some kind of a crisis or a, a level of conscious growth where then we realize, well, maybe there are some really interesting viewpoints. Maybe Buddha had something good to say. Maybe Muhammad was actually not nearly as bad as the media makes him out to be. And then the next thing you know, we go from sort of our own little ethnocentric group and we progressively expand to where we realize how important everybody in the world is and how important nature is. And then we realize, wait a minute, this all couldn't be happening without the moon that's making all the tides move and keeping the the the, the whole circulatory system of the planet going. And it, we, we couldn't be alive and well without the sun. And then those are part of a galaxy and the galaxy is part of a universe. So as... As we grow, our love, our conscious awareness expands itself. And then we realize that we're part of a whole in which all parts are as important as the other parts. And one of the ways I define this, help my patients understand this, is I, I, my clients and students, is I say, imagine that you had a giant puzzle big enough to fill a wall. It had a million pieces. If there was one piece missing in the puzzle and you were standing there looking at it, where would your eyes go to immediately? And everybody says right away to the place where there's a puzzle piece missing. <laughs> yep. And I say that puzzle piece represents you. No matter how lost you feel, no matter how fat you think you are or tired you think you are or what disease you may have, that puzzle can't be complete without you in it. Every one of us is here to share our experience, our life, our lessons, our love, our wisdom, and our challenges with each other. And just like a chain, if you take one link out of it, it's dysfunctional. Absolutely. So spirituality is really realizing that you are absolutely essential to the beauty of the grand whole. And without you, there's a whole. Everyone's looking at it. <laughs> No, that, that's a beautiful way to put it too. You know, I think it really drives it home and really helps people uh, understand their own importance in the bigger picture. Yes. You know, we're all 
miracles. You know, there's never going to be a, another Michael. Do you pronounce it Susie or Susie? Uh, Susie. Susie. Well, there's never going to be another uh, Michael Susie in the world ever. You're the only one that'll ever have those fingerprints, your smile, your eyes, your gifts, your talents, your way of looking at things, your way of relating. And every single one of us, in fact, there are, there's not a single snowflake that ever is reproduced. There's not two plants that are the same. You can't even find two stones exactly the same. So when you realize that source or uh, the zero point field or God or whatever people want to refer to it as is a novelty generator, yet somehow each piece of novelty is essential to the whole, then we realize that our deficiencies or our inadequacies are actually inherently part of the beauty that makes us unique. And I think when people embrace that, then they're more inspired to become well and to become spiritual people. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, Michael, as someone that works with corporate executives, what do you feel are some of the common challenges they face with living a balanced lifestyle? And where do you feel executives' challenges are the same or different from people in lower earning brackets? So, you know, just be thinking about LinkedIn, and again, we don't have people doing manual labor. So, you know, that obviously has a whole bunch of other challenges when you're physically active all day long. Um, but I, I think from a LinkedIn perspective and the people I work with, th there isn't much difference uh, in terms of what they're under. Um, sometimes the executives maybe are crunched for a little bit more time, um, but at the same time, Everyone is, is crunched for time. And so I don't see a big differentiator in that capacity. To a degree, it can be a little bit easier. They, in theory, have access to more resources to help them. You know, whether it be someone who, an executive that makes a good, a really good amount of money could potentially, you know, pay someone to cook for them, where some of the lower level has to get to the market. But Overall, I, I don't see much differentiation between what an executive would go through or, you know, an entry level person. Right. So uh, what are some of the challenges that you find that are like the common denominators of people working in the corporate environment? Whether, you know, I'm talking about things like time challenges, That's cooking it. for themselves. It's time. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, 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 go I'm ahead. Say, it's either it's, it's twofold. It's, it's thinking that they don't have the time. And then it's also thinking that what they want to do requires so much more time than it actually does. Yes. Uh, years and years ago, uh, when I was a younger man, I was studying uh, Earl Nightingale's work. And in one of his books, he makes a profound point. He says, time can't be managed. We all have 24 hours a day. Only activities can be managed. Yep. And really, that's what I do with my clients as I... I say to them, okay, let's look at your six foundation principles, nutrition, hydration, sleep, breathing, thinking, movement. Let's look at your four doctors and let's take out a calendar of a week and write down what are the things that you have to have in place in order to be a healthy person, a whole person, and have a sense of well-being in your life. And when And I tell them that's what we call sacred time. That's where you honor and worship your own life, your own self, your own existence. Because if you don't have that in place, you're teaching your children how to live that way. If you do have it in place, you're teaching your children how to live in, in a healthy lifestyle and to have well-being. 
And if you don't have health, then your schedule gets even trickier because now you have to put visiting doctors and going to drug stores mm-hmm. and it takes you longer to get out of your car, get your clothes on and you start having gadgets strapped to your body, <laughs> you know, so it really boils down to activity management. And I find that a lot of people in the corporate environment get so busy that they really just haven't learned how to prioritize activities effectively. Have you observed that? Yeah, absolutely. And not valuing just how, how, how big of an impact a little bit of time can have when you give it to, even if it's just taking a minute at the top of an hour to do some conscious breathing. Exactly. I, I have my clients set their iPhone or, or clock or watch or whatever they've got to beep every hour. And when I begin training with them and I have them do 12 centering breaths and I have them wear the string like we use for core control, except I just have them put the string around their belly button. And I tell them breathe into the string specifically to tighten it so that you know your belly's expanding, which means your diaphragm's dropping down and you're getting, you're filling your lungs with air. And I say, as you inhale, imagine you're a tree growing to the sun As you exhale, imagine that you're that same tree growing roots deeper into the earth so that you're more stable. And it's amazing how people will tell me that just that one change totally changes how they feel throughout the day and even changes their mindset. Because I teach them whenever you're feeling stressed, focus on sinking your roots and breathing and knowing that you can make it through it. And when you want to grow, then focus your effort on growing. Such if you're working with a relationship challenge, sink your roots, but hold the concept of growth and seeing challenges as opportunities as, as instead of limitations. And something as little as that, really, you know, most people are up, let's call it 16 hours a day. That's only a 16 minute commitment that can totally change somebody's <laughs> life. Absolutely. That's such a great visualization that you give uh, relative to, you know, growing, reaching up on the inhale and, and, you know, roots growing down on the exhale. It's really powerful. Well, it's actually a a trick as well, because that's the way the chi flows through the microcosmic orbit. So when you inhale, your yang meridians run up your spine and your yin meridians run down through your sternum, through the linea alba, down into the sex organs. And thus the microcosmic orbit is where all the other meridians draw their energy from so that's really the key life force generating system in the body so when i have someone inhale and visualize that they're a tree growing it actually is using their mind and imagery to harmonize with the rising of chi in their body and as they exhale water sinks toward the center of the earth if they bring their visualization down, then they're actually using their mind and imagery to facilitate the movement of life force energy through their body. That's awesome. I'm going to, we're actually leading a, we're leading a mindfulness retreat. Um, we do these at work, um, which has someone who leads a mindfulness and compassion program, but we do these retreats on um, a couple times on weekends, but we're doing one on a, a Friday next week. Actually, no, I'm sorry, two days from now. And I lead one, you know, one or two sessions within that like four hour retreat. I'm definitely going to use the tree and the root. Yeah, it's it's so simple, and we're all so familiar with trees. I mean, uh, it's a it's a great concept. Uh, I found it extremely helpful. I, you know, my soul gives me these things just while I'm meditating, and I meditate at home quite often at night after I finish my meditation in the sauna. I do my tai chi under a beautiful big tree in my yard. 
and I have a great relationship with that tree and she inspires me with all sorts of ideas. I bet. So, uh, Michael, uh, what's the name of the show? I mem- you mentioned it earlier that you do. Uh, wellness, like, uh, I, I was, yeah, it's called Wellness Live. Yes. Uh, somebody forwarded me your interview with Gabrielle Reese and Laird Hamilton, who yes. I don't know if you know, but they've been clients of mine for many, many years. Yeah, we spoke of you actually that day. I oh. let them know that I was uh, had some Czech certifications, um, and they were absolutely awesome awesome people yeah aren't they really amazing are. people yeah i love i love them i've been working with gabby since about i don't know 95 yeah. maybe yeah, uh, they both they Laird. obviously speak very highly of you too yeah they're good but in fact i got a surprise phone call from laird the other morning which i every now and then he'll give me a shout <laughs> and it's always great to hear laird's voice on the phone you know he's got that very distinct yeah, yeah. voice you know well, that's a that's so, a good conversation it was neat to see that. So obviously you're coming into contact with some, you know, very well put together, accomplished people. I'm wondering who are some of the people that have inspired you uh, to be the, the person you are today? Ah, uh, Well, you know, I would be so growing up, you know, loving sports. I was always sort of inspired by great athletes, um, people accomplishing things on an athletic field. You know, in that capacity, you know, there, in that capacity, there was one person in, uh, specifically that I was always enamored by because of how long he ended up playing uh, in the NFL. Was, his name was Daryl Green, and he was a defensive back for the Washington Redskins. But he played a defensive back, what I think the hardest position. I say that I was a defensive back, but I think it's the hardest position to play. Um, he played until he was over 40. He was one of the had fast, one of the fastest 40 times. And I just, what I really remember about him was just how, what a great, he was a hall of famer, um, how great he was and how long he was able to play. And something about that always really, I really appreciated about him. And I think inspired me in the sense of saying like, when you care for yourself, when you take care of your body, it will sustain you even doing something as rigorous as playing, you know, a sport like, like football. Um, then, you know, I, I had to look also and, and talk about my parents to a large degree and sometimes, you know, even family in general, you know, you look back and sometimes the inspiration was an inspiration to get the hell away from them. Um, but also <laughs> yeah. the things that they may have done, you know, and maybe you didn't see it when, in, when you're younger, but sacrifices made, uh, decisions made that were in our, me and my siblings best interests, but certainly weren't easy for my parents, whether it be going to uh, a different school or, or going out of their way to take us to different events so we could participate in different things. So there was a portion, a portion of like never quitting that my dad always showed. Um, and I think that I didn't realize how much that was maybe part of me until I became older. But I think it was because he role modeled that. Even when things weren't great, he never quit on anything. Yeah, um, that's He kind of did whatever it is that had to be done to make sure that we were all, all always good. Um, and my sister, so I, I'd be remiss if I also didn't mention my mother. Um, you know, which my mom really taught me is about faith. Um, and sometimes we don't necessarily practice faith in the same way, but the concept of faith, of believing in something bigger than you, um, of knowing that we are interconnected in that capacity. You know, my upbringing in that regard, I think, had a foundation to grow into what it is is now. And then also, my, I have an older sister. And, you know, she was someone who always accomplished a lot and so sort of set a high bar and also um, was a bit of a trailblazer. 
And so she would go and she kind of gave you that courage to say like, you know, it's okay to step outside your comfort zone. Uh, it's okay to put yourself in a position where you're a little uncertain of things, but know that you'll figure it out and uh, you'll be great at it. So I've kind of put those, those folks in that capacity. Uh, Daryl Green and my family. How's that? <laughs> That's very good. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned faith. I, I think it was Joseph Campbell said that uh, if we knew what God was, we would lose our willingness to have faith. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and what, he, what he's saying is if, if we make an objective concept out of God, we, we create this idea that we know what God is, then we lose our willingness to have faith and then we just become stuck. Totally agree. So um, I'm curious, you know, you're working with people that have a lot of screen time. Are you, what are some of the things you do in your wellness program to help people deal with the stress and the negative effects of so much exposure to screens and uh, electromagnetic pollution and, and technology like that? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is just, you know, and this, this is like multiple birds with one stone is get away from it. You know, get up from your desk, go for a walk, put the screen down, um, be conscious of how much time you are on it. Uh, another aspect of it is informational. You know, there are products out there that can, to a degree, lessen different aspects of the light that maybe doesn't, doesn't impact your sleep as much. Uh, so giving people access to resources that may be beneficial to them. And a lot of it is informational, you know, sharing with people things about walking barefoot in, you know, the soil um, and just kind of making sure that they are first and foremost aware. This actually is a good like little transition into one little mantra that I always teach my team about our program, which is that the acronym of AEB or awareness, education and behavior. And so we can help raise people's awareness. That's not very challenging. Sometimes people are already aware. Uh, but either way, they're either aware or we can help raise their awareness. We can then supply education and we can supply that in multiple ways so that they receive it in a way that resonates with them. The next part about actually changing behavior is harder to measure to know if we're doing that. But that ultimately is our, is our goal to make them aware, give them information and education that uh, resonates with them, and then give them access. And hopefully they you know, take the behavior steps to, to deal with it. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, are you familiar with Masaru Emoto? Oh, that name sounds really familiar. Was it? He's the guy that did all the research on the water yeah, crystals. Yeah, yeah, the showing... water crystals. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the ways he uh, made a living was he would go into corporations and assess for electromagnetic pollution and help people that were having health challenges due to overexposure to electromagnetic pollution. And uh, he gave a lecture here in San Diego. Uh, many years ago, I think it was about a year before he died. And I had this intuitive hit that I better get to it. And in that lecture, he said something quite profound. I'm going to share this with you because you direct a wellness program. He said, of all my years of doing electromagnetic uh, pollution work and helping people with health problems due to electromagnetic pollution, he said, I made a very interesting observation. People that were happy who are enjoying their life and their work never showed any signs of ill health due to electromagnetic pollution. Yet someone sitting right next to them that didn't like their job or wasn't happy could be made very sick by the same stress that didn't seem to affect other people. That's amazing. 
Well, I share that with you because you've obviously put together a very well-rounded and holistic program for people that are spending a lot of time on screens and interfacing with technologies, which, as you know, have definitely, uh, you know, create stress for the body. But congratulations for putting such a beautiful wellness program together, because based on what Emoto identified, you're actually helping them in magical and mysterious ways that they probably don't even realize. Yeah, no, that's great. That is really great. You know, I, I've uh, as as we both know, your your six factors are uh, really expressions of my six foundation principles. Um, I'd like to just run through and maybe give a get a little bit of a brief look at how you work with each of them. So, sure. um, what are some of the most common challenges you assist people with regard to thinking to optimize their health and performance and sense of well being? Sure. Um, well, part of it is, you know, teaching mindfulness and what that entails. Um, uh, teaching people also the relationship between uh, how we eat and how our mind works. Um, helping people set purpose, understand the importance of goals. So those, I think, kind of encompass in that thinking aspect for us, or you know, we more we call it thought. You know, we call it thoughts in that regard. But um, uh, yeah, to me, it's you know, it's it's purpose, it's mindfulness, it's compassion, um, and it also gets into cognitive function aspect of that. So how are you well? Like, what are you putting into your body to make your uh, brain work uh, optimally? Right. Those are the parts that we kind of keep in there. What do you when if someone asks you what the mind is? What do you tell them? Uh, I say, I would say to somebody that the mind is an either, or it's either your prison or it's your playground. Um, it is our connection to things and how we, and the control we do have over it, it will either create things for us or it will sabotage the very creation that we can come up with. Right. So to a degree, it's kind of like, it is what we make it to a large degree. Um, it's influenced by a lot of things, some which aren't within our control, like our genetics can certainly play an impact to a degree, though not override every other, uh, attribute or contributing factor to it. But, uh, yeah, I would kind of surmise it as saying it's, you know, it's, it is what you make it. It's an either or. Right. Um, you know, the best definition I've ever come across from mine is Daniel Siegel. Are you familiar with Daniel Siegel's? vaguely yes yeah he's a an amazing psychiatrist that's very very holistic you might find his work fascinating his uh book which you can also get on audio the neurobiology of we he's got another book called mind sight that's excellent he's got a lot of great there are a lot of great books on parenting but he's actually the first one ever to really develop a working definition of mind he describes in his lectures and, and audio books how as a psychiatrist he was traveling to conferences all over the world and nobody in his entire profession or in any of the conferences he went to that were specifically on the mind could define what the mind was. So he got a panel of about 40 experts together to work with him to define what the mind is. And I'll share his definition with you because I think you'll find it interesting with regard to the work you're doing and to help people. His definition of mind is mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. That's, I like that. It's, it's, write that down. You know, what's very important about that is mind is an embodied process, which means your mind and your body are actually two sides of the same coin. Yes. 
and the alchemists say as above, so below. So someone who spends all their time in stinking thinking ends up with a body that mirrors <laughs> that back to them. Yep. It's a it's a relational process because even if you're thinking your own thoughts, I say to people, hold your hand up in front of your face. And they do. And I say, now tell me what you're looking at. They say, my hand. I say, oh, isn't that interesting? You have a possessive there. My hand, my foot, my body. That's because who you really are is in relationship with that body. So there you see that the mind is actually a relational process and how you think regulates the flow of energy and information in your life. So it's, uh, I, I love what you said as well. I mean, it is really a, an on off. Yes. No, it's a choice making machine. It's an information it gathering system. Have you ever uh, had a chance to listen to or read the book one mind by Larry Dossie? I haven't. No, I'll it'll blow that. your socks off. Uh, it's called One Mind, you can, and the audio book is excellent, and I, I highly recommend it to everyone listening. It's a beautiful, beautiful book that brings you right up to date on the current science of mind, and it shows that very clearly that what we think of as our mind is really like a neuron in a collective brain called the mind, but the mind is actually inherently the entire universe. There's no way you can separate ourselves from the universe so it's it's a it's a really beautiful powerful book it's awesome it is it is you know it's funny so i thinking back i remember being younger this is kind of a deal with the level of faith but also that you know continuum that we're part of and the first time i remember like having my mind blown was laying in bed as uh, i was you know preteen and just thinking about you know how finite the world is and then thinking about when we die we go to heaven and then when does it end and i remember just having like literally like it, it bothered me uh, to a large degree that there wasn't this end point you know because we're so conditioned in this idea of things have a beginning and an end and when that happens it kind of just goes on in theory like forever right and it didn't make me it didn't feel right in that capacity and so you know because again heaven as a place to go or hell as a place to go to uh, as your being. And a concept that, you know, I think, and this to me is powerful in that we can tap into that one mind is that I used to, what everything you said right there, I totally believe. I feel like I've always believed it. Uh, so like hearing it doesn't make me, I think some people hear things like that and it's, it's so contrary to what their upbringing is relative to like, and, you know, uh, the Christian faith. I grew up. I was raised Catholic, but in that, you know, it's like you go to heaven or you go to hell. Yes. Maybe you spend some, maybe you spend some time in purgatory, um, but aside from that, there's your place and that's where you go, and like you're done contributing or all this different aspect of who we are and the knowledge that our cells have gained that that we, the fact that we don't continue to contribute constantly just doesn't make any sense to me. So, um, I, will, I will definitely get one mind. It sounds beautiful. Well. Having had countless Christians with very limiting ideas, including Catholics, in my classes and workshops and lectures all over the world for the last 35 years, I tell them something quite profound. I ask everybody, do you know what the address to heaven and hell is? So far, nobody's been able to answer it. And I tell them <laughs> the answer is, the address to heaven and hell is halfway between your left ear and your right ear. Yep. It's in your head. And I tell people, 
if you can't create heaven while you're alive, you have no chance of creating it while you're not alive. So <laughs> you might want to orient yourself towards living a life of well-being and learning to make love every day so that whatever happens when you die, at least you know you have the seeds of that in you because for a lot of reasons I don't have time to explain right now, the mind doesn't die and cannot die, and therefore your body might die, but yep. your sense of being goes on forever. And if you haven't learned to create heaven while here, you're going to be living inside your mind. In fact, Rudolf Steiner says in his book, At Home in the Universe, which is all about what happens when you die, he says, the first thing that happens when you die is you find yourself surrounded by people just like you, and you stay with them until you're absolutely sure of what you will never do again. <laughs> and if that doesn't inspire you to learn to live and love better than nothing Yeah, will. no, that's right. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of uh, a big booming awareness about breathing now, which I think, I think is fantastic. And I have to credit Wim Hof for really being one of the driving forces behind that. I'm wondering what are some of the common challenges that you see with people's breathing and what do you feel the etiology or cause of a lot of these challenges for them is? I think the most common challenge is a lack of awareness of the power of the breath um, and a lack of awareness of the signs that it's giving you that allows you to make better decisions relative to, you know, it's the first indicator in many instances of impending stress or mood changing and all those different things. So I think it's a lack of awareness of it. And then it's like a physiological aspect of how people just, you know, we sit too much. Um, they never learn how to breathe properly. And so functionally, you know, they're using secondary respiratory muscle muscles to do their primary respirations. Right. And it just leads to, as you know, a slew of everything from, you know, upper back problems to uh, much deeper uh, issues of just not breathing right. Yes. It's interesting because all the way back in 1934, a book called Body Mechanics in Health and Disease was published by Joel E. Goldthwaite, MD. And I think there's probably three other authors on that book, but he's the lead author. And they did uh, tests using, I think it was barium, uh, some, some additive that would allow them to see the diaphragm on x-ray. And they tested a lot of people and found that the average person in 1934 was only getting two thirds of a normal breath, that they weren't breathing a full breath. So imagine how different it is today with the number one place that we work is in a chair. And being stress is really the most common thing that disrupts people's breathing patterns. Yep. So it's, uh, you know, it's really important when you look at the, fact that we on average breathe about 25,900 times a day, which interestingly turns out to be exactly how many years it takes our sun to make one lap of the galaxy. Wow. Steiner says that we, our average human life of 78 to 100 years turns out to be the equivalent of one day in the life of the sun, which has about a 10 billion year lifespan. So Steiner shows, I think it's his book, Universe, Earth, and Man, he shows lots of coral, cosmic correlations to how the human body is really mirroring back cosmic cycles and cosmic functions right from top to bottom. But he's basically saying that 
to be alive as a human being is to have your day in the life of the sun. That is. I love that. It's very beautiful, really. It really is. It absolutely is. Yeah. I've got a number of books that go into things like that. Joseph Campbell uh, goes into a lot of this stuff in some of his lectures because the the Vedic scriptures were, were quite good at explaining these correlations. You know, with breathing, too, it is the single thing that has the largest and quickest impact for people. It does. Because it's immediate. You can teach someone to move properly and it may be great, but there's not going to be this immediate feedback mechanism like, holy shit, that worked. It's, um, the, it's the chief mechanism for creating life force energy or, or chi. You know, air is, the air we breathe is charged with uh, an energy called prana, which the uh, ancient Indians and, and the, if you study the, the Hindus like the Upanishads and, and if you get into the science of yoga, Breathing is very important because we draw prana or life force energy into our body. So if our breathing uh, isn't optimal, our life force isn't optimal. And the first thing that happens when our our vitality stops starts dropping down due to poor breathing is we start reaching for high energy drinks and snacks to pick ourselves up. But mm-hmm. most people don't realize a lot of their blood sugar handling challenges and, and binge eating comes from just poor breathing habits. It's amazing. Yeah. And people don't want to, they don't, not that they don't want to believe it. They just don't believe it because it's so simple Well, until they do it. that That's one of God's sense. That, that's just how you know God has a great sense of humor. It turns out that everything we take for granted turns out to be the most important things like <laughs> the earth, yeah. water, yep. sleep, breathing, moving. Yep. Things, things uh, that are just way too simple for our medical system to even look into. <laughs> Yeah, there's no money to be made. <laughs> no, you, yes. Well, we have a disease maintenance system, not a healthcare system. But that's yeah, why that's, that's why guys like you and I are so busy. <laughs> that's right. I always tell people that I will always have a job. Yes, exactly. I tell all Czech professionals: if you can't make a good living right now, then you've got a, a personal issue that needs to be healed. Yeah. <laughs> how about water on that conversation? What do you? How do you uh, communicate the importance of? water and and, uh how do you differentiate good water from not so good water to your clients well it starts with this is easily the most used uh checkism that i use and is repeated consistently is if you pollute you must dilute yes and i you know we we really harp in on that message i think the first thing is getting people just to be aware of the lack of water they may be drinking relative to the other you know sources of liquid that they're consuming so some people, it can be something as basic as, you know, we just need to get you to stop drinking so much of this particular thing and start drinking more of that. You know, with a young population and people like to go out and be social and they consume alcohol, you know, that pilute, the pollute dilute message definitely resonates and it's very easy for them to also feel an impact because if they do consume water while they're out having a night on the town, it's, they, go, I'm, they go, it's remarkable how not ill I feel the next day. Yes. Or not as hungover. And that to me, like, ideally you don't drink as that much. And I listen, I, I'm someone that likes to have drinks. So I know I always tell people, again, life should be enjoyed, not endured. We can do these things. Just be respectful of the relationship that it has with us and know how these things work together. That's my 80-20 rule. Yeah, absolutely. And people always want to get, you know, one thing I've learned to stop doing from a water perspective is giving guidance on amounts of water to give because someone inevitably comes up with another research article says one thing or another. And so we've backed off being more like specific and say things like, 
uh, at the end, if you were to journal your fluid intake, water should be far and away the largest liquid you consume in the day. Yes. And just getting people to at least look in that regard. You know, one thing that we've done is make water more attractive. So in all of our, mo the majority of our break rooms across the world, we have 32 offices in 18 different countries. Wow. But the majority of our break rooms, one, all have at least filtered water accessible. So it's not just having to drink out of tap. So at the very least, there's a basic filtering process. Um, we also make water more presentable, um, putting it in, you know, infused with lemons and limes, cucumbers, and this, that, and the other. Um, hiding, if you will, or putting some of those other beverages, uh, sodas and whatnot, uh, in harder to find places. Yes. And one thing we found, and we had the opportunity in our Singapore office a couple of years ago to actually have a really, not truly scientific, but not just guessing at numbers, uh, impact on putting those principles in place. So we were going through a redesign of our break of the, one of the break rooms and they didn't swap out any product. They just took all the soft drinks and they put them on lower shelves in the refrigerator and they frosted the glass, but not the entire glass. It was frosted from like the bottom up. And so then at the top were more, um, you know, coconut waters and things of that nature. So something that had a little bit of flavor, maybe a little sweetness, but would be rated better than having a uh, right. soda. And then they started putting out water into um, containers, you know, again, infused with something. And we saw uh, a 31% decrease in soft drink consumption once we made that change on a weekly basis uh, without taking anything away from anybody. So just, you know, making it more presentable, making it more accessible and giving people an opportunity to just see the difference when you do drink water versus consuming the, you know, the extra cup of coffee. Again, I love coffee, so I don't tell people not to drink coffee, but I always say to people too, when you're going for that next coffee at two or three o'clock, like ask yourself why, and just have a glass of water instead and just try it and just see the impact that, that then the caffeine is going to do when it's your fifth cup of the day. And, and now your sleep is impaired because you're drinking coffee at two, three o'clock in the afternoon and you have a caffeine sensitivity. So from a quality perspective, there's a lot of information sharing, um, kind of letting people know what to look for when it comes to a quality water. Um, but you know, to me, the biggest thing that we do is just make people in general consume more water and less non-water drinks. Yes. Are you familiar with the pinch test? I don't remember if we teach that in HLC one or not. I don't think so. Well, I'll teach you a technique and everybody listening that's very easy to determine whether you're adequately hydrated or not that gets around all the debate over, uh, you know, half your body weight in ounces or all that because I could go on a long dialogue on that, but we're, we're pretty far into this, so I won't – I'll save that. It's all covered in my Holistic Lifestyle Coach training, but basically if you just turn your hand over so the top of your hand's facing you and pinch the skin right on top of your hand and then just let go of it. The, f the slower your skin is to return to its normal position before you pinched it, the more dehydrated you are. Ah, nice. If you're well hydrated, it'll snap back almost it's, just yeah. like a, almost like a, a, you know, not quite as fast as a rubber band, but it'll jump right back to its normal position. The other thing is that people like to drink a lot of alcohol, but most people aren't aware of the fact that every molecule of alcohol that enters your body attracts three molecules of water with it when it leaves your body. Ah, that makes sense. I didn't so, know that specific, but that, yeah, that totally makes sense. 
yeah, it has to do with the molecular bonding effect of alcohol in the body. So what happens if you, if you, you know, metaphorically, if you drink one bottle of beer, as an analogy, you're going to pee three out. Mm-hmm. Of course, beer is not all alcohol, but when right. you, you know, when you understand that alcohol bonds to water and it takes three molecules out with every one molecule of water, you can see that drinking alcohol is, is very dehydrating for the body and it leads to all sorts of things like blood sugar regulation problems, uh, mental function, cognitive problems, uh, energy problems. It's, you know, I don't need to tell you there's a lot of negative side effects, but oh, so many. All you got to do is two things you got to do if you like alcohol, drink plenty of water while you're doing it and keep consuming some kind of fat and or protein like cheese or yep. slices of roast beef. And that ties the alcohol up so you get a slower release of the alcohol from the stomach. Alcohol yep. also happens to skip several stages in the Krebs cycle of energy metabolism. And research shows it elevates blood sugar faster than uh, processed table sugar, significantly faster, which then leads to a rapid blood sugar crash. And restaurant owners know this. This is why whenever you go to a restaurant, the first thing they want to do is serve you alcohol and bread. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Both of those raise your blood sugar really high, which ultimately crashes you. This is why they give you lots of time to sit there and talk. So about the time it's time to order, you're going into a blood sugar crash and your eyes are far bigger than your stomach. So you end up getting a much bigger bill for your food, but the problem is it leads to a hell of a lot of food wastage. Yeah, absolutely. Which I'm not somebody that likes to see going on out there. Absolutely. Well, I also learned about the impact well on the topic of alcohol relative to sleep is alcohol's effect on, I believe, the neurotransmitter adenosine uh-huh. and that effect it has on disturbing sleep, though it may make you sleepy and just that whole process of... Uh, yeah, the negative impact that, that alcohol has in that capacity. Yes. What are you uh, doing to inspire people to get uh, enough sleep? Yeah. Well, we, so the past, this is the third year we've done it. We've taken one of the wellness tenants and made it our focal point of the year, not at the neglect of the others, but just to really highlight it and have a year long campaign. Uh, this year, the, the tenant that we're focusing on is movement, and it's called uh, Move to Improve. Last year was on thoughts, and also we went into mental health and called it Keep in Mind. And the first year that we did this concept, we focused on the rest tenant, and we called it the Quest for Rest. And so um, what I learned through working with uh, a sleep expert, a sleep consultant, her name is Nancy Rothstein. She's worked for a company uh, that we contracted with uh, previously to do uh, some work. We put on sleep fairs in a bunch of our offices, so we brought in products and vendors along the range of helping people sleep, identifying where their sleep may be disrupted, what's disrupting it. You know, with our population of folks, what we found is that, in, you know, in short, light alcohol and caffeine are the three main sleep disruptors that people are dealing with. Um, not maybe from an overconsumption perspective necessarily, but from a, a lack of understanding of what it's actually doing, like the impact that we just mentioned that alcohol has on adenosine or how long caffeine actually has an impact on you know, your body and it's disrupting your sleep if you're having uh, something later in the evening. Yes. So part of it is pointing out different things that people can do. So limiting screen time closer to bed, uh, developing a bedtime routine. One thing I started to tell people when I leave like different sleep programming is you want to make sure you go to bed at night and not pass out. And that usually gets people a lot like, what do you mean by pass out? And it's like, 
to me, if you don't, if you weren't able, unable to go through your bedtime routine, wash your face, brush your teeth, do whatever it is that you prep yourself for before bed. If you're unable to do that or you don't do it, then that's in essence passing out. Yeah. And what you want to be able to do is develop bedtime routine. It goes, sounds juvenile, but when you do that and you prep yourself for sleep, you'll get better sleep. And uh, a lot of it is just really a, a phrase I learned is that some people have dis- sleep disorders, but most people have disordered sleep. Amen. And if just get clean up their sleep hygiene and uh, have an enormous impact. We gave people alarm clocks, uh, old school alarm clocks like with a bell on top, but they were the no ticking. So you could have it by your bed. And we had a big campaign around charge your cell phone outside of your room and use this as your alarm clock instead of your phone. Excellent. So you don't engage in the phone in the middle of the night. Even if you innocently, like you, you need to go to the bathroom, you see what time it is. You know, we're a global company. People lead global lives. You know, not everyone is going to bed at the same time you are. So people are hitting you up at 3 a.m. because they're in Singapore. Yes. Um, and they're not trying to disturb you, but it's the middle of their day and they're sending you a message or they're liking your post that you put on LinkedIn. And all of a sudden, you're just wanting to see what time it was. And now next thing you know, you're scrolling through your timeline on different things. So a lot of it was awareness and tools and just helping people understand the, the things they're doing that are having a negative impact and the things that they do do that have a positive impact. So drawing that relationship between that day that you ate really well for yourself when you took time, A, to eat a well-rounded lunch that you knew was the right macronutrient profile for you and you had proper movement and you had good relationship with the people you live with at home that evening. Isn't it amazing how well you slept? Yes. And helping people connect those dots from their behavior to the outcome it just goes a tremendous way for them to develop their own strategy too. Yes. I'm sure you know that I have an entire chapter on sleep in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. Yes. And you've probably also observed that I put a mind map at the beginning of each chapter so that busy people like the kind you're working with could get the general points very quickly just by looking at the mind map. It's great. No, that, that, Paul, that, that book, I'm telling you, it is a book I, I go to on the regular to, you know, if I'm preparing uh, very deeply or not for a while, that's the first place I go um, and, and gather information. It really is one of the best books someone could have. It's really an operator's manual for how, how to live and how to, how to take care of a body, you know? Yeah. And you don't have to be someone that has gone through training specifically. You can just be, you know, a lay person, for lack of a better word, yeah. that just wants to be better. Um, you don't have to have gone to school on kinesiology or anything of that nature. And it's very self-explanatory and, and utilitarian. You know, the well, a lot of people don't know this, but the way that book got written is one day I was coaching someone and telling them what their poop should look like or how much water they should drink for the 30,000th time. And it just dawned on me, why am I waiting for people to get sick and have injuries to come learn all these things that nobody's teaching out there? And by that time, I had two big cabinets, file drawer cabinets full of handouts, which are most of the graphics you see in the book. That I would sit and say, okay, this person needs to learn about sleep. This person needs to learn how to read their poop. This person needs to learn about water, dot, dot, dot. I thought I should just put all these in a book so that people can learn how to take care of themselves for $25 instead of having to spend thousands of dollars to come see me and healthcare professionals all around the world. So really, it took me about 15 years of clinical practice to get the, the knowledge to be able to know what needed to be in that book and, and, and to figure myself out. 
Yep. And then it's a powerful book. Thank you. Uh, and I'll tell you what, my boys, uh, my, my two, uh, my, my two, uh, stepsons, their favorite page in the book is the police hoop lineup page. Yeah. That's real common. I have many uh, <laughs> countless numbers of parents told me they, they, uh, photocopied it and blew it up so they could stick it on the wall by the toilet because their kids love to see see how they're pooping <laughs> you know on that too on that point of you know uh number one as opposed to number two you know we use that in a you know we put like uh a urine chart up in the bathroom right just to kind of bring people's attention to that you know what again pay attention to what goes into you pay attention to what comes out of you and you know, a lot of things, maybe you can't solve the issue, but it's telling you, your body's giving you signs that something's not right if those things are off. Yes. You know, my next question as we're kind of coming to the end here is having learned the concept I developed called working in, I'm wondering how important that is in your approach and what kind of results you've seen with people that incorporate regular work in practices in their lives. It's super important. And what I love doing, because it also uses work in, you know, whenever I share that with people, they kind of laugh and go, I go, I learned that before I started working at LinkedIn. It just coincidentally and conveniently was called work in. And, you know, I share where I learned that from, but it's immensely important. It's also the most challenging thing to get someone to do yeah. because everybody wants, so when we first, when I first started the program and we, when we go into a new office, and we're rolling out, maybe we're going to start offering on-site classes in an office because the headcount got big enough. We'll ask people, you know, what kind of classes are you interested in? And, you know, yoga is an option. And then we maybe get a little deeper, like what type of yoga? And we'll put up like, you know, power yoga or yoga flow, make a more breathing one. And 90% of the people want power. It's yeah. power and intensity and this, yeah. that. And it's like, we, that's great. But how we getting people to back down into that, especially with the demographic that we deal with, it's all about go, go, go. And if I'm not sweating or if I'm not, you know, uncomfortable that it's not doing what it's supposed to do. So it's immensely important. We want, we're, that's one thing that we wish that from a movement perspective, as we measure people that are engaged in the movement offerings that we offer is seeing more people go into those other uh, modalities, the less intense and understand that whole concept of, of working in. Yeah. One of the ways I trick the athletes into doing it because a lot of people think that doing things like breathing squats or, you know, the various work and exercises look funny. And, and a lot of athletes think, well, you know, I'm not lifting anything. How can it be of any conditioning value? And of course I explained to them, you know, how it's the foundation of their health and performance and how timing your breathing and movement harmonizes your guts, your heart and your brain so that your body actually functions much more like a well-tuned engine and less like a engine that needs to tune up and burns a lot of gas and doesn't deliver a lot of power. But I say, look, I, you can turn any exercise into a work in. If you're going to squat, for example, then everybody in the gym, if they see you squatting with an empty bar on their back, on your back, they think you're warming up. I say, so just start, just start. And I take, all sorts of elite athletes and superstars that just think that the concept of working in is too fluffy and wimpy. Right. And I say, okay, I want you to pay attention to how you feel. Just put your awareness in your body. How does your mind feel? What's your sense of comfort in your body? How much energy do you have in your body? How's your breathing feel? And I just have them orient their consciousness to some of these basic things. And then I say, okay, just put that empty bar on your back. And as you lower down, exhale. 
And as you come up, inhale and just pay attention to adjust the depth of your squat and the speed that you're moving so that you can not have to breathe faster. And I want you to do 30 to 60 repetitions that are easy enough that your respiratory rate and heart rate don't speed up to the best of your ability. Or I say, pretend you just ate a big dinner or lunch yep. and go at a pace that would allow you to aid your digestion. I've never seen a single athlete when I said, okay, after, after their set was over now, how is that mind feeling? Oh my God, my head's clear. How's your body? Oh, I felt so much energy. Yeah. Good. Now you know how to work in. <laughs> and exactly. now you know how to work in without looking like you're a weirdo doing Chinese, yeah. <laughs> Chinese exercise in an American gym. Now, Paul Check doesn't give a damn. I say it's my job to lead the way. So you can find right. me doing, you know, stork walk exercises down the hall on an airplane <laughs> at, at 30,000 feet in the air in airplanes or whatever. Actually, I got, that's great. I had a cop come to me one time, believe it or not, at the Carlsbad airport right here where I live. Uh-huh. I was doing Tai Chi while I was waiting for an airplane outside of the airport at 5.30 in the morning. And it was, the sun hadn't even come up yet. And he threatened to arrest me because I was doing exercises that looked too unusual. And they thought I might be some kind of a terrorist or bad guy. <laughs> All I those s- Tai Chi terrorists that are out yeah, there. Yeah. I said, you got to be kidding me. I said, who is it that's going to see me? There's the, the windows on the airport are tinted and it's dark out. You can barely see me. There's, there's a whole airfield around me. I said this I said this kind of behavior is exactly what's stopping Americans from being healthy. And I said, I looked at him, I said, You're an ex-soldier, aren't you? And he said, Yes. I said, Well, h- how much time in your work and training as a soldier did you spend not exercising? Was there a single day that you didn't do some kind of exercise? No. And I said, Well, here you are trying to threaten me to arrest me for keeping myself healthy. I said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I said, no, no, I will not stop doing Tai Chi. And in fact, if you arrest me, I'll make sure it makes headline news because I know a hell of a lot of people. You don't even know who you're talking to. Did he end up joining you? No, he just walked away and just left me alone. But I, I, I had to go through this kind of like 10 minutes of him, you know, making sure he knew that at least one person knew he had some power. Well, if you do a Czech Institute television commercial, that could be the commercial. You're doing Tai Chi, the cop comes to arrest you, and then it ends up he does Tai Chi with you. Yeah, that that would be good, and and you know a lot of them would. I've I've rehabilitated many policemen in my career, but this was just a security guy who right right you know just wanted to flex some muscles with somebody. <laughs> it was silly. Well, we know it's a good group. I'm sorry. I was just saying, you know, the, the athlete and the gym goer and the, you know, the, the, the hyper uh, person in that capacity working in is challenging, but a very receptive audience that I have found is when we gather people for mindfulness retreats and meditation sessions, they're a very receptive audience to the work in um, because it supports the reason why they came to that particular session or workshop. So uh, that is one positive that I have found with work, you know, a great application of the work in is to incorporate it into someone's mindfulness practice. Uh, so it's not introduced as something to do in the gym, but it's something that they're going to do to help the practice they came to develop. Yes, absolutely. And I tell the athletic people that working out is like using a credit card. You're spending resources and you have to pay the debt back through diet, through sleep, through breathing, through self-management, working in activates the parasympathetic system, which is the anabolic, the healing, the growth, and the repair system. 
So to the degree you want to accomplish a lot athletically, then you can accelerate your recovery for free by doing work in and you can harmonize your heart, your guts and your brain so that the whole system is more integrated and significantly enhance mental clarity, which improves your technique and increases the likelihood of getting into flow states and reduces the risk of injury. And once they understand that, and oftentimes I have to use a, a diagram of the autonomic nervous system so they can actually see. I find if people see diagrams and they can couple the image with what I'm saying, then all of a sudden, you know, the penny drops, so to speak, and they get it. Yep. So it's been a fantastic interview. I'm wondering if you were going to die tomorrow, what message would you share for the people of the world as a parting gift of wisdom from Michael Susie? Uh, well, I would say, you know, lead with love, but start with yourself and maintain a sense of humor. Oh, oh great spirit. If you've lost your sense of humor, you're already dead, aren't you? Yeah, it's powerful. You know, I, I love, I grew up loving comedy and working in comedy clubs and my wife and I go to comedy shows all the time. It's one, but one thing we really like to go do. And, uh, even certain, you know, actors, you know, I was watched a lot of Seinfeld and Larry David as he, uh, did other shows. But one lesson I always tell people I learned from Larry David, I never met the man is that the most awkward situation, the most uncomfortable situation, there is humor in it. And if you can find it, and deal with it appropriately because sometimes some people don't want to be laughing at certain instances. But when you can find it, uh, life just becomes a lot more bearable. And I find that we bounce back from tough times a little bit quicker when we don't lose that sense of humor. Yeah. So I'll close with a couple of little jokes that are safe to tell anybody. <laughs> what do you call a bull with no legs? I don't know. Ground beef. There you go. <laughs> what do you call a, a cow with no milk? A cow with no milk. Um, man, I'm stumped on that one too. A milk dud. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, what a great talk. And, and it, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, you know, my dream with interviewing you, with you was to inspire everybody to take better care of themselves, but also to inspire people to know that people like you are making it into corporations and turning corporate America into a healthier environment and a more conscious environment and helping people understand the importance of interacting with nature so that we can uh, have sustainable living instead of just, you know, torturing the planet for our instant gratification, yep. but also for the Czech professionals to be inspired to know that, um, that the training they've gotten gives them the tools they need to really help people even in corporations as large as LinkedIn. So I'm very, very grateful for your time. Where can people you know, uh, where, yeah. Thank you. And, and where can people find out more about you or anything else that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, people can certainly check out my my LinkedIn profile. Uh, that's the only real social media that I, I keep. Uh, feel free to connect uh, with me. Send me a message, any question. You know, I part of our role at LinkedIn uh, as LinkedIn employees is also to help people advance their careers, just at the most basic level of networking and whatnot. So. I love to be able to give time back to folks as they're trying to either get into wellness or have their career take off. So, um, yeah, people can feel free to, to send me a note. I'll do my best to reply as promptly as I can. And, you know, Paul, it's an honor, one, to be able to speak with you. Uh, as I said, you know, you have been one of the most influential people on my life, both personally and professionally. Without your teachings, I don't really know what I would be doing. 
uh, right now. So uh, yeah, it's an honor to be able to speak with you and to be able to share this platform to enhance the message of wellness for all is uh, truly an honor. Hey, well, fantastic. And uh, I'm really grateful for everything that you're doing and uh, keep up the great work. I was just curious. One of the questions I get from Czech professionals all over the world is where can I do an internship with somebody that's applying your teachings effectively? Do you ever do any internships for uh, people? We do. That, that are, like budding Czech professionals. Yeah, typically the internships are actually people that are like, you know, recent college or in, currently in college. And they definitely take on more of a um, administrative, you know, behind the scenes aspect, which is not to say that it wouldn't be applicable, but we actually do less hands-on in that capacity. Right. But um, uh -huh. yeah, we do. We do have intern cycles. We actually have one starting uh, at the end of this month. It'll be our first official intern. Um, but in that regard, we also, there are a lot of like, specifically from a training perspective, there are a lot of really great companies that we hire one in particular for our US offices, and they manage all of the personal training and class programming and what we do in our gyms. So there's a pretty wide opportunity uh, on a couple different fronts to get into corporate wellness that is not necessarily just at that particular, like I work for LinkedIn, many people in corporate wellness work for third parties that contract to run a wellness program at a particular company. Yes, a few of the Czech professionals have gotten work in places like Dubai and the Middle East working for royal families and all sorts of stuff through corporations like that. So I know there's possibilities out there. I just wanted to throw that out there. I've, you know, the way I live my life is if, if I am inspired to find a master to teach me, then I will track them down and find out what it is I need to do to get their intent, attention and know that I'm for real and that I can support them. So forgive me if you have young budding Czech professionals hanging out waiting for you to come to your car one day, but uh, you're the kind of guy I want him to track down. No doubt, no doubt. Well, one of the good thing, and I, one thing I try to do living in California is uh, I walk or ride my bike to work. I take the train. Uh, so if they're looking for a car, they're going to miss me. Well, that's that. You'll know if they find you. They're really committed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen. Thanks for uh, sharing so much with me and and. Uh, laughing at my terrible jokes and uh, <laughs> lots of love to you and uh, keep interviewing, keep interviewing all the great people that you're working with out there and, and inspiring everybody and enhancing corporate wellness. Cause uh, you know, it takes guys like you to shift our culture towards harmony and sustainability and, and uh, you're doing it. So great job. Well, thanks Paul. I will. I'll keep on fighting the good fight. Right on. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Michael Susie. You can follow Michael on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash IN forward slash Michael Susie. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living 4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living 4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul Check's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.